Hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> oh, there you are. So how's everything? Oh, it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> you seem to be having a run of bad luck lately. What's going down? I don't know. It's a run of bad luck. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was fast. <laughs> All right, so anything else you want to offer, or we just jump right into the action? Let's jump right into it. I think this will be a smooth one. You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Donald Sutherland. I'm doing improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network now on Podbean. Welcome to the third episode of the eighth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, we're talking another counterculture icon. This time around, we take on a Canadian actor and former radio newsman hailing from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in his younger days. As such, it's probably no surprise that he hails mainly from Scotch stock, with a bit of German in there for good measure. He double majored in, of all things, engineering and drama, quickly dropping all the dry bourgeois practicalities of applied math to pursue acting across Western Europe, doing a lot of work in British cult television and horror films, before finding a niche as a rebellious hippie outsider type in several celebrated war films of the late 60s and early 70s. The Dirty Dozen, Kelly's Heroes, The Eagle Has Landed, and he introduced the pivotal role of Hawkeye in the original film version of M.A.S.H., later to make Alan Alda quite possibly the biggest star of the 70s, and off reference as the sine qua non of the sensitive, post-feminist new man of the decade. Front and center in a number of important films of the 70s, Clute, Don't Look Now, Eye of the Needle, Work with Fellini and Bertolucci, and even Animal House, he closed the decade with an even more paranoid and effective update of the 50s sci-fi classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm. before falling into a long run of workaday films that kept the bills paid, but offered little of interest to the cult film aficionado. Well, there is Buffy the Vampire Slayer to contend with, and the tween sci-fi boulderization of Battle Royale, The Hunger Games. Hell, he even wound up in a Kate Bush video. So, join us as we talk one of the true icons of 60s and 70s cinema, and Canada's finest, the one and only Donald Sutherland, Stranger in a Strange Land, the counterculture of Donald Sutherland. Good evening, I'm Doc Savage. With me is the maven of sleeves and virago of vituperativeness, <laughs> Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Hello, all. <laughs> it's been too long since we said that. Plus, you got the new, I like that, Virago of Vituperiveness. <laughs> I'm proud I of like that. I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, this is our Donald Sutherland show and our sort of new incarnation as shows about character actors and actresses and that don't always fall solely in the genre areas. But we're, we're having a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we had Joe Don Baker in previous seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Shatner. Connery. William Shatner, Connery. You know, Connery, not so much character actor. But Michael Caine. Michael Caine, you know, but uh, yeah. Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell, yeah, there you go. There's, there's a really good example. And now, Donald Sutherland, who, well, here's the thing. Like, some of these people went in to be leading men. And, uh, you know, in their older years, they kind of fallen back into that thing. But they started out as, you know, what, what was, you know, I've interviewed quite a few character actors over the years. And, 
these guys used to tell me uh, in the interviews uh, when I spoke to them, uh, and not not all this, not all these for Chiller, you know, for various things, publications for my own research. They used to t tell me we felt we were coloring the scene because that's what the director said. You're coloring the scene like they they needed a certain look, a certain type to enhance the background of a scene. And then once they did that enough, they were known for that kind of thing. And then they kind of worked their way up to speaking parts, more and more so than, you know, hell, Lee Marvin, of all people, was was started out that way. You know, mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, this is like, you know, of course we're going to be doing other things like we used to do, but we've done so much over the years. I mean, you don't want to go back to too much. We've been to the well a lot of times for a lot of different things, you know, the Italian horror, the French, the Spanish, and picking on directors and genres. So this is like a new thing for us, and we're having fun with it so far, and uh, we, we thank you all for listening. So we're going to go right to Donald Sutherland. So a few further tidbits of interest that we didn't mention in the promo. First off, you should probably already know that he's the father of Kiefer Sutherland, a far lesser actor, essentially famous for Stand By Me, The Lost Boys, and Young Guns 1 and 2, and that perfectly awful redub of the Armage 3 anime, Cyber Matrix, with Elizabeth Berkeley as Saved by the Bell and Showgirls fame. I'm so excited. <laughs> then, on to something more important than that clown. We've mentioned several times how the whole Hellfire Club Dark Phoenix storyline, one of the most adult and multi-leveled stories in comics in the second half of one of the two greatest runs ever produced in the media, the other one being the Doug Munch Master of Kung Fu ones with Paul Glacey and Gene Day, that it was much inspired by the Avengers TV series, among other things, specifically the Touch of Brimstone episode, which dealt with a modern-day iteration of said club. Diana Riggs and Appeal is the Queen of Sin therein, partly for Jean Grey's Black Queen, but also in several respects Emma Frost's White Queen. Peter Wingard of the same episode in his other series, Jason King, as Jason Wingard Mastermind, and other members of the same cast, serving as facial models and inspiration for names and events, such as Harry Leyland, clearly modeled on a beefy bit player therein. But further turns out that Donald Sutherland was Claremont and Burns' inspiration for the cyborg member, Donald Pierce, whose last name comes from Sutherland's famed turn as Hawkeye Pierce and MASH. So, as you can hear, these ties keep going deeper every time we touch on some of these character actors of the era. Another interesting bit of info, apparently Sutherland did some work for the Huffington Post back in the 2008 election, supporting Obama, who, while a pretty ineffectual neocon in practice, was certainly a damn sight better than either his predecessor or his successor. So, interesting point there. So, otherwise, we can get back to where things started with Donald Sutherland's career. First of all, just in terms of films itself, we mentioned how he was kind of starting out looking into engineering or whatever, and then just wound up acting and drifting about. It's funny, because I just mentioned how some people, character actors, I just mentioned how they would say they were coloring a scene, y'all. And, and, and in his case, he had a particular look. Yes. Y'all, uh, he, he was tall, thin. He had a look, and he... He, as well as casting directors and as well as directors, they, they, he, he had a very interesting look. He could look scholarly, and he knew how he could also look like a village idiot, you know, look vacant. He was really good at that. And then he could look like a well-learned man. And uh, some of his early appearances, <laughs> he's like scientist in the background or tall man in a nightclub things like that you know it's it's like they they used his physicality a lot before he actually started doing other things so go ahead 
So uh, actually, one of his first appearances, once he got out of radio and all that, started doing stuff over in the UK, was a series called Men of the World, where he was basically an uncredited bit part as a neighbor. And this series had stiff Peter Gunn actor Craig Stevens, a UK series with an American lead. This kind of thing happened occasionally, but yeah. He's a pushy photographer newsman who gallivants around the world looking for the next photo op. That's kind of obnoxious, but it's a watchable series, and it's most notable for one episode which led to a much better spin-off series, which we'll get to momentarily. So, again, bit part, but just interesting that he even showed up in that particular series. Because after that, he does a few more things, you know, suspense, uh, a TV movie about Terry Thomas, and then he shows up in the spinoff series, as I mentioned, The Sentimental Agent. This is a likable spinoff of the Man of the World series, which has a fellow named Carlos Thompson as a famous import-export man, kind of like radio's Gregory Hood or the UK TV's The Baron, who gets involved in various almost spy show scenarios, somewhat akin to how The Saint or Jason King would always seem to stumble on things in their shows. And he had a manservant, right-hand man type, who is none other than Inspector Clouseau's Cato, Burt Kwok, who was kind of the go-to Asian in British television casting calls of the era. <laughs> yeah. And he gets a reasonable bit of screen time, actually, in the series, which is another plus. Apparently, they had one big problem with the series. English was Thompson's second language, so he had a lot of trouble reading scripts and learning his lines in a timely enough fashion for one of these rush-rush weekly television shows. So towards the end, they actually replaced him with a flimsy excuse with some American lunk named John Turner, who is not the most unlikable guy on Earth, but... He doesn't work as a lead, and that's probably what killed the show. Turner actually took over for like five episodes in a row towards the end. But again, another way to just kind of sidewind some of these in, you know, a long time ago we talked about doing even more British cult TV, and, you know, when are you really going to mention something like The Baron or The Sentimental Agent or Man of the World without digging in again to waters we already tapped into? So the fact that he was in this is it's just a bit part, like a hotel clerk or something, was yeah. worth uh, bringing that up. So, is there anything you want to mention before we actually get to his first movie? No, good. Next up, he does Castle of the Living Dead, where he plays three parts. It's a possible Ricardo Freda effort, certainly a classic example of the Italian Gothic, but it's listed as directed by someone named Warren Kiefer, whoever the hell that is, and Michael Reeves may have been assistant director as well. Who knows? Similar in many ways to the German torture chamber of Dr. Sadism with Christopher Lee, once again, as a sadistic, vengeful ghost who takes recompense on visitors to his eerie castle. This time it's more akin to Italian efforts like Playgirls and the Vampire, Vampire and the Valerina, or Bloody Pit of Horror, in that they're a troop of, in this case, actors. Conveniently, their play involves an execution or two, which managed to actually happen much to the light of Lee and his weird sidekick. Best of all, the midget of the troupe is actually the hero of the film. It's quite atmospheric, if quite nasty. The girls are pretty. Luciano Pagazzi is on hand for some extra Peter Lorre-style atmosphere. And Sutherland actually pulls off three minor roles here, mostly under heavy makeup. A sleazy, none-too-intelligent military type who serves as a sort of de facto policeman, who ogles gleefully at a faux public hanging, an old creepy guy, and perhaps most amusingly, an old beggar woman, which, there's better examples of the Italian Gothic, but it's a pretty good one. And for what it's worth in terms of who actually directed this thing, he actually named his son Kiefer after this fellow Warren Kiefer. So this guy must have been involved, whether he actually directed the whole thing or not. Who knows? But somehow he must have been there. <laughs> uh, Warren Kiefer actually did direct this. I think it's, he was from, I don't know how many times I've been over this, reading this stuff. He was a guy who had money, you know, when he went over there and he kind of, cooked in with the in crowd, you know, it's just like early to mid-60s, in, you know, Italy, England, you know, not like Dolce Vita period yet, but quite close, or just around the cusp of that, you know, and, or actually maybe it was a late Dolce Vita period, <laughs> you know, big, big, big 
changes, you know, mods and all that thing going on. And so here comes this American about money. So uh, he did actually direct that. I think he did a very few things in the cinema world. But it, it was a very chaotic production. Uh, this guy really did, wasn't a filmmaker making movies. And I think a lot of people knew a lot of people. Hence... Donald Sutherland showing up like I'll help out I'll play this part I'll play that part I'll play that part and and in hindsight people were like oh they're all related you know he's he's the witch who's playing the old man he's the witch who's playing the police sergeant or maybe how about he's just filling these parts because they didn't have enough actors (laughs) (laughs) and maybe not enough money to pay actors to play these roles it's of its time you know it's eerie but it's, it doesn't have the staying power and the creepiness of something like the Torture Chamber of Baron Sadis, which, which, to me, I could still watch that picture. It's got many titles, that one. Uh, Karen Doors and that. Lex mm-hmm. Barker. Mm-hmm. Actually, Lex is quite fun in that. And um, Christopher Lee, of course. And that's a picture I could watch every couple of years later. You know, oh, I haven't seen that in a while. And, like, that one still works. It's got that little... That's more of a German... Italian co-production. Yes. Uh, this one definitely weird, but nowadays it wouldn't be a go-to, and it wouldn't be a picture I'd point someone to. But for somebody starting out in movies, it's good for him. He went right next to a bunch of British things. Yes. Yeah. Actually, he does Anamicus first, which is Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. Mm. He's in the last and least of the stories in this Amicus anthology as the husband of a pretty French girl who turns out to be a vampire. After he stabs her and gets arrested for murder, his colleague turns out to be a vampire as well, just out to get rid of the competition without dirtying his own hands. Drum roll, please. It's one of Hamicus's better horror anthologies, actually, but not really for this segment. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is definitely one of the better British horror anthology films, feature films. It's got, it's funny. I mean, nobody's ever done this. I don't know. Am I the only one who thought of this? Hamicus made a lot of these things mm-hmm. over the years. I mean, if somebody took the best episodes, but even if there's two in one film, took the best and just made one long movie would be or great. compilation, it would be great. It would be like, wow. Because they, they never made a, a, a total bomb. But a lot of these, these amicus things, there's like... They're so spotty. Yeah, yeah this, they're always spotty. We talked about and, all this stuff in our amicus show, by the way. Yes, we back. did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah this, this one uh, is not entirely unsuccessful segment. It just, it, it came off I think in this one, it was the one that was a little slight, because yeah. it also was a little jokey. Yes. And then it had the tag scene at the end, where, you know, of course, the doctor engineered the whole thing, remember? Yep. And, and so it, it comes off a little like, yeah, okay, you know, it's, it's, but, you know, nice, nice little role for him, because previous to this, he really hadn't done anything like this. So, nice starting point. Yeah. And the trick with the Amicus is they stole a lot from EC Comics, and yes. the problem for me with those is not the ghoulishness or the whatever, the extremeness of some of the uh, murders and things that are going on. It's all that stupid Borscht Belt comedy, which some people love, but I really, horror and comedy don't mix. And that's this was actually the most comedic segment of this film, which is why it's like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't work for me at all. So anyway, next up, 
he goes right from Hammer because he graduates to Hammer itself. Unfortunately, again, not the one of those greatest Hammer films. Let's put it that way. Die, Die, My Darling. It's got another title as well. I forget what it is. Maybe uh, not Christian. Fanatic. 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 That's it. Right on the backs of his Italian excursion as running with Amicus, Sutherland now winds up in the hands of Hammer. Unfortunately, it's an uncomfortable affair at best and far from one of the most celebrated films. It's mostly watchable for the girl from Uncle and Mrs. Hart herself, Stephanie Powers, in the lead role. This one concerns Powers' wedding night guilt, leading her to visit the crazy old mother of her last fiancé who we're led to believe died in a car crash. Of course, the old bat, who's actually Tallulah Bankhead, the underwear-stewing, oversex-started lifeboat, who gave the cast a daily thrill climbing into the water tank, apparently, and the Adam West Batman's Black Widow is totally out of her gourd and a crazy Bible-thumper, speaking of uh, Miss O'Neill, who considers her as Slattern, who lays her precious boy astray. Particularly as it turns out there was no car crash and no wedding going to take place, the guy killed himself over her rejection in the end. Cue the white slavery version of Candle for the Devil, where the old nutjob keeps the girl down in the basement and tries to convert her and cleanse her soul. Amusing footnote, one of the servants who helps the old bag in her forced conversion attempt is none other than man about the house's toothy Mrs. Roper herself, Yutha Joyce, Donald's Yutha's retarded son and groundskeeper. Eventually she gets away, the old bag gets her comeuppance, and everyone walks away saying, jeez, that was a nasty piece of celluloid. Yeah, you know, uh, while they whilst, whilst. Hammer was doing these gothic horrors, you know, the full-color Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, Mummy, the whole shebang there. They were also doing these terror films, the majority of them in black and white, by the way, which seemed to have some kind of influence from the American TV things like Alfred Hitchcock Presents... Or William uh, Castle, or Hitchcock. Or, or William Castle, Hitchcock, or Thriller. Mm-hmm. The Boris Koloff Presents Thriller, if you remember those. I, I, I would say Hitchcock to a lesser degree, although there's definitely something going on there. And William Castle to a lesser degree, but some, you know, if you watch enough of these Hammer terror films, I would call Hammer terror films, they seem to really have been, you know, I, if I go back to watch, what was the thing? The one with Oliver Reed? I love that one. Yeah, but what was it that show, not Night Gallery, preceded that, um, not the Twilight Zone. Well, this is a Twilight Zone-ish. No, but not the Twilight Zone. A suspenseful kind of thing. But certainly Hammer had a run of these. You know, or Robert... Yeah, you know, but they had the oddest casting. Robert Weber was the star of one of these. Oliver Reed, actually, was the star. Paranoic. Oliver yes, Reed was that was a great one. Yeah. yeah, some of them were quite good. And actually, almost... If you go back to them now, when they were fresh and new... As we were growing up and seeing them, they just didn't, I didn't dig them. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I do have a much more fond appreciation for them now. Because I, I think they were much more adult than yes. I gave them credit for at the time. And maybe I wasn't an adult to appreciate them more at the I time. I had the same you experience know, with them, yeah. Yes, you too? Okay, good. We're on the same ground. Yeah, I, I think I, I, now that I'm older and I'm watching these, I'm like, wow, these are way before the time. There's things I did not get then yep. because I also didn't give them the chance also. There's a lot of psychosexual subtext to these things. Yes, and they're actually now, you know who speaks very well? These, I think it was Kat Ellinger. She's a very good, she does very good audio commentary. She does very good writing stuff. You know, from the pe- female perspective of a lot of these things, mm-hmm. her stuff is very, very good. Uh, even her audio commentaries. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've seen a lot of her written stuff. She's pretty good. She's pretty good. And, and, she gets it, 
and and it makes me do want to. Although they're pricey, you know, not, why was that about the Blu-rays being so pricey? All I don't stuff? know. I'm not buying anything lately. It's terrible. Yeah, me neither. I'm like, Where's the discounts? I'm, yeah, I'm like, oh, there's a couple of things I want to get. It's like I left at home my list when I went to the last convention I went to. I had a list of things. I only bought four, but the guy gave me a, a, an amazing deal because yeah. I am who I am. But thank you, sir. Uh, he will remain nameless. But you know, I don't have much money either. But uh, <laughs> I'd like to see these again. I know they've been put, putting them back out on Blu-ray. And the, 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 the black and white contrast must be amazing on some of these. Uh, so, yes, we're older now. And, yes, we see subtextual things in these we did not see mm-hmm. before. And they play quite well. Actually, TMC or some channel like that has been showing them on occasion, some of these Hammer suspense films. Uh, I believe that because even back when I was still you know, dealing with full cable back in my old house and watching things like TBS and TNT, mm. the Turner Networks were showing things like this. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Fanatic is is oddball film. Always will remain so because, you know, first of all, Tallulah Bankhead, where the hell are they going to hurt? She, she had more of a reputation as a... Uh, <laughs> Free spirit. Thank you. Let's, let's do it that way. That makes everybody happy. Someone who likes to flash her snatch. <laughs> oh, no. It was, more, it was more than that. She was, it was more than that, yes. It was more than that. We're not going to go there. We're, I like gonna, her, though. I like this her. is the, the unsleazy show. <laughs> sort of. Uh, sort of. But, no, very interesting. Uh, his role was minimal in this, Donald Sutherland, but, uh, and he for the next couple of films he would go back to being this like guy in the background kind of thing or you know very few lines mm-hmm. so I throw it back to you so he does a couple of more well, okay there's a lot more TV series but ones that we care about at all The Saints he was actually in two episodes of Roger Moore's long running series one from the superior black and white era and one from the iffier later color run this is the series that introduced Moore to the world and got him cast first in The Persuaders with Tony Curtis and finally, was the last real replacement for Sean Connery in the Bond series. He was in one called Escape Route and one called The Happy Suicide. That's all I really have to say about that one. But I'll jump ahead, and then you can fill in if you want to, to one that we had mentioned last time, actually, because he was part and parcel of The Avengers yes. in The Superlative 7. You may notice... Great, great episode, yes. A lot of the folks we've been covering have seen to share more than a few film credits. We've seen Donald Sutherland in films with Michael Caine, David Hemmings, Sean Connery. Here he shares a credit with another lady we talked about just recently the enticing Charlotte Rampling. This is actually one of the best Avengers episodes, a sort of Agatha Christie old dark house and then there were none affair with Patrick Menees, John Steed as a fellow invitee along the likes of big game hunters, master fencers, circus strongmen, matadors and such, all considered the best in their field supposedly. They wound up in a chartered plane with no pilot that lands them on an island with a disused old mansion where they're hunted down and killed one by one as a test of Sutherland's superior new assassin training. It's atmospheric, it has some excellent sets, but the real draws here are the cast, which include Brampling as an Annie Oakley-style dead-eye shot, Brian Blessed in an executioner outfit as a master of unarmed combat, and Sutherland as the sleazy mastermind behind all this, monitoring the action with glee and panache in an attempt to sell his wares to a foreign power, whom he promptly shoots dead when the deal goes sour. Oh well, back to the drawing board. 
But yeah, it's a very memorable episode and uh, well worth your time to see. And like I said, just this cast alone is amazing. Oh no, we we, we actually covered this in the adventure show we did, or one of one of the adventure shows we did. And the rambling show. And the rambling show, which was very recent. And yeah, Donald Sutherland, nice standout performance by him, even though it's a, a TV thingy and. You know, he was smart enough to not only work with what was available to him, but he kind of, he added a couple of ticks to his character in this. If, if you watch The Superlative 7 of The Avengers, yes, that Avengers, mm-hmm. um, you will notice he has some kind of like ticks he added to the character. He did like an odd twitch, and this accent was a little... Quirky. <laughs> quirky, like he wanted to make foreign power... Y'all, this kind of thing going on there. And uh, I, I enjoyed this. It's one of my favorite episodes of any television program ever. Uh, the Avengers does have a lot of episodes that are favorites to me, but this is definitely one of the top top five. Mm-hmm. Great show, great episode, and um, back to you. So you notice he's doing a lot of British spy stuff for ITV, and uh, cult television is kind of related to that. And, of course, he'd worked his way up from Amicus to Hammer. Well, now he kind of goes to the side, which is the same sort of group of uh, films are all related, with The Shuttered Room. (laughs) Don't mind that. Uh, The Shuttered Room, which is a Hammer-esque Warner Seven Arts affair with a vague Lovecraft connection. This one's really all about a drunken gig young, fragile if often stunning Carol Lindley, and raging bad boy rocker, as in Moz vs. Rockers, Oliver Reed. We addressed this one during our Oliver Reed show, but suffice to say it's rather small town and grotty for all of its atmosphere, and Sutherland's big role here is limited to the voice of a character that you never actually see on screen. Even so, it just shows that he's making the rounds with all these sort of uh, big British culty sort of television shows and movie companies. So next up he goes to, and this is probably one of the major points for most people, The Dirty Dozen. Yes. The original Suicide Squad. This is Lee Marvin whipping up a bunch of military prison types into combat shape and sending them off on an effective kamikaze mission to infiltrate a French chateau where a bunch of Nazi brass are supposed to meet to take out several high-ranking types all in one shot if they can survive long enough to do so. After the usual tough guy posturing and having to prove themselves to the Downing Thompsons of officialdom, it turns into a sort of Where Eagles Dare U.S. style, only instead of having an inaccessible mountaintop fortress, it's a lot more down-to-earth and commonplace. You're mostly invested in this one for the rebellious leads and who they cast, namely Ernest Borgnine, Charles Bronson, Jim Brown, George Kennedy, Telly Savalas, and Donald Sutherland. Problem is, with such a large cast and such a long build-up, there's not a lot of time spent on characterization, especially once the mission actually begins around the halfway mark. In fact, the characters are kind of less than ciphers. You see a hell of a lot more of a personal touch on a fucking superhero film than you'll ever see here. Tagging the fact that this one is very much Lee Marvin's show, with everyone else more or less just cameoing, and you have a very different picture than you get just a few years later in what I consider a far superior film, and we'll get to that one shortly. But what do you want to say about this one? I know you like this one a lot. I do like this one a lot. I, I'm Robert Aldrich is, is is a problematic director for me, much like Sam Peckinpah is a problematic director for me. But what I mean by that is I'm not a fan of everything he does. But this this film just works. It's not so much about machismo. This, this all, you know, it's probably one of Lee Marvin's three best roles, you know, uh, highly up there. Yeah, he, he's just so good. He runs with this thing, you know. And actually, Lee's playing older in this. A lot of people didn't know that. He looked older than his years. So Lee Marvin's actually playing older, and he pulls it off. And some guys who are older are playing younger. Think about that. 
uh, like like Clint Walker was like ten years older than the than the part he's playing. I mean, I get I get what you're saying. Yes, it, it because it's a big movie. It's almost three hours long. I get what you're saying that a lot of people don't have enough time to shine or to yell the characters. But you know, Cassavetes, John Cassavetes, they gave him enough to to work with something, and he figured, you know, even Charles Bronson, even Jim Brown. If there's something wrong with this film for me, it's the Telly Savalas part. Not so much Telly himself, as the Bible-thunning religious zealot who's also a complete fucking psychopath. He belonged in an Italian thriller. <laughs> uh, it's just that where Aldrich was going with that, and where he does go with that, I, I don't really... I didn't dig it, but I think he wanted to create a white stereotype for that, and it just wasn't written clearly enough, and so Tally had to work with something that wasn't great. Now, getting to Donald Sutherland, they gave him like a part of an idiot savant. You know, like, yes. he's a smart guy, but he comes across as a complete, maybe possibly autistic character, mm -hmm. and He's trying to work with that too. So yes, you know, also the name Vernon Pinkley. Okay, <laughs> poor white guy from I don't know the Alabama or something. Yeah, Alabama Appalachians. Yeah. You're like, yeah, sir. Oh, yeah, good golly, sir. Like, go my pile, but I'm <laughs> smart. Uh, but then I call him a savant because you know. Robert Ryan is just general can't stand Lee Marvin and can't stand you know, he gets an inkling of what's going on with this. Not the entire ball game, but he doesn't approve and they want to show him up because I think a paratroop jumping uh is next and they're like they're what they gotta learn how to do. And uh you know, so they call Donald Sullivan to be a general. Like, you want me to be a general? It's like what does Lee Marvin say? Just shut your mouth and look stupid, just like a general. You know, and, and it's, but and he almost pulls it off. He goes up and down the ranks, and he where does he blow it? Where are you from? And some guy goes, uh, I don't know, from Kentucky. Never heard of it. You know, and they're like, what? And he just like blew it there. So yeah, you know, it's a really standout. What, what everybody has a you got to work with what you got to work with in this kind of picture. One of my favorites. For this kind of movie, I really liked it, and yeah, it, it was a lot of people got put on the map with this one, including him. Yeah, you notice a lot in these earlier movies, he's playing hunchbacks, semi-retarded, you know, whatever, just like the creepy assistant, even that guy that was, when we were talking about Castle Living Dead, when he mm. was the guy that was supposed to be the uh, deserter from the army or whatever the hell he is, that's acting as a de facto cop. Look at the way he's watching this, you know, execution in front of him. It's like, ho, 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 ho. You can tell there's like two brain cells and they don't rub together. <laughs> so I don't know what that was all about. But he, he goes on to better things from here. Let's put it that way. Oh, next up, though, is not one of them. Billion Dollar Brain, which we talked about a couple times back. Certainly in our Ken Russell show, but I thought we also talked about it with Michael Caine. Michael Caine, right. He's just a scientist at a computer. You'll notice him. Uh, it's another bit part walk-on. He's one of the computer techs in crazy Carl Malden's compound in that Jump the Shark second half of the film. He gets to interject a quick line and bam, collect your paycheck, grab a sandwich from the craft table, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. That's basically it. <laughs> it's also like a lesser Ken Russell film, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's almost like what was going on with that, you know, and it's... Yeah, we don't want to say anything more about that one. So a couple more TV series now. Uh, Man in a Suitcase, 
Whew, hard to review this series. Part of me liked it as a sort of grittier take on Danger Man without all of Patrick McGowan's Catholic reticence to be with the pretty ladies or do much violence on screen. But this guy, Richard Bradford, oi. Apparently, Lou Grade and other folks involved with the production had a lot of trouble working with this man. And I mean a lot. The DVD set gives both sides perspective, if I recall, but he really seemed pissed off and somewhat of a... I hate to drunken, but a surly brawler type who just liked to stir up shit wherever he went. I'm sure they regarded casting this guy as the lead. So the vibe of the show, while you can certainly say it's gritty and noir-esque, it's very dark and intense in a way that wasn't intentional. He's an FBI man who gets set up and betrayed by his own people and forced to clear himself while doing jobs for them in a roundabout way. He's pissed off and ripped off by everyone around him, just trying to make a buck and set the record straight. So he's like a chip on the shoulder times 10, firing all cylinders 24-7. It makes for a hard watch, and you won't walk away feeling too sorry for the guy, the way he overreacts and treats everyone in sight, on camera and off, to my understanding. And again, he was just in two episodes, and I don't even remember. There must have been bit parts, possibly as one of the thugs or hired goons that's out to get him. Which way did he go, McGill, and Day of Execution? Then he does a few more things. Oedipus the King, the Sunshine Patriot, God knows what these things are. Then winds up on The Champions, which is another uh, ITC mm, series. That's right. It's a weird-ass attempt to do a spy show where everyone has more or less unspecified superpowers. The only thing you know for sure is that they're super strong and have a psychic link to talk to one another. Alexandra Bustato is the female lead. Stuart Damon was there for the ladies. And this guy, William Gaunt, is at the risk of being blunt. Very, very gay throughout, dressing in natty tennis clothes and eyeing up Damon and other guys with a sly smile, that kind of thing. Never gets his hands dirty, that's for the manly Damon to do. To make things worse, it's very Cold War obsessed, so every episode they're either fighting Red Chinese or Russian commies, or even Central American commies. The Red Menace is everywhere. It's like 2019 with their concentrated spy initiative neutralizing the two main enemies via Trump and Brexit, but been in the 60s. It's a strange series. I believe we did talk about it in one of our British cult TV shows or mm, one of our spa yeah. shows, but we yeah. Did. We did. So he's in one called Shadow of the Panther. I don't really remember this particular episode, but it's a strange series. So anything you want to say there? No, I, I don't remember that particular episode either. I, I also have the box set. It's been a while, so can't speak to that one. So now comes another big point in his resume. 1970, he's Hawkeye Pierce in MASH. It's a typical Robert Altman job, the whole sub-Howard Hawks thing, people talking over each other, huge ensemble cast, slightly shtick he always pulls. But here the black humor over war resonated well enough with the Vietnam hippie crowd to not only make the film a smash hit, but to inspire the television series of the same name, which gave us the whole sensitive Alan Alden New Man thing that women were supposedly looking for throughout the 70s, and the spin-offs Trapper John M.D. and the short-lived Jamie Farr bomb after MASH. There's a lot of big names in this one. Sutherland, Elliot Gould, Tom Skerritt, Sally Kellerman, Robert Duvall, Rene Arbourgeois, years before Star Trek, Joanne Flug, John Shuck, Shards of McMillan and Wife, Bud Court, Fred Williamson. The only carryover to the series is Gary Burkhoff's radar. Even Stallone gets a walk on here as one of the soldiers. Like the show that followed, the writers were savvy enough to keep things half a step removed as the show was set during the Korean War. Oh, okay, it's Korea, that's safe. A decade and change earlier, rather than the contemporary is Vietnam. Sutherland offers a very different Hawkeye than the more balderized, whiny Elder version, being more in your face and belligerent in his passive aggression than Elder ever got his most finger-pointing Kvechi. I mean, this is the guy who just done the Dirty Dozen was about to do Kelly's Heroes, so you know just how well he can give the finger to the man by just being laid back and surly and cracking a few sardonic jokes. At one point, they help out one uptight member of the unit who's become convinced that he must be gay, which makes him suicidal mind, so they do this half-practical joke thing where they stage the Last Supper 
dose him and arrange for him to sleep with a local hottie and easy meat, which puts his fears to rest and leaves him a new man, so to speak. Oi. The final third of the movie involves an inter-unit football game where they recruit former football player Fred Williamson as a ringer, dose the opposition's leading players with drugs, and pull all sorts of dirty tricks to win. As you can see, our heroes aren't exactly the most upstanding of individuals, employing all sorts of dirty tricks, blackmail, sexual harassment, sit-ups, they go one uptight officer into getting locked away from mental evaluation, swiping poppers from the infirmary, gambling, you name it. But this was a different time, and the fact that many of the juvenile pranks and dirty tricks are directed at the stiff and officious and those in power leaves them as spokesmen for the general public, if not anti-heroes, seen as likable and, quote, of the people at the time. Whether any of this plays to today's far more uptight culture isn't even debatable. The answer is an obvious no. But that's not to imply things have gotten somehow better. It's just that we've gotten so scared and cowed, we're all walking on eggshells and under the thumb of the corporate military and police who can claim some questionable degree of, quote, authority over the rest of us. I think that despite some things that really don't strike me as cool about the 407 7th year, we could use a lot more of this easygoing, you don't like it, go fuck yourself spirit nowadays. Well, I, I was really interested uh, that it was, uh, being that uh, Robert Altman, he certainly had a, which he didn't really play up at much with his other films that it was a bit of an anti-war film mm-hmm. and Donald Sutherland really plays finally not a caricature of a type so he, he's pretty much playing this as a role you know so scripted and so it's nice to see him actually doing something and not you know hamming it up or 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 playing someone with a debilitating tick or much, much like his earlier TV, British TV work, is actually playing a role here, which actually got him a Golden Globe uh, nomination. Nothing major, much more major, but such a big ensemble, as Robert Altman films tend to be. Mm-hmm. It's an un- ensemble piece, but it's it's a good film, and I recommend people take a look at it. Although this would probably be his best film for about... A year. He he works a lot now. He works about five or six films in a mm-hmm. row. But maybe this also Mash touched something in his own personal psyche, or maybe it was just a meeting of two minds because he was at this time period a uh, activist, mm-hmm. a very well known one actually, as we will will come to see. But he still he still does the oddball roles, so so to speak. Yeah. Speaking of which, and it's not that far removed if you look at it in a certain way, but it is kind of a a stretch from MASH. Start the revolution without me. All of France and I shall be king, and I shall be queen. So exclaimed Gene Wilder and Donald Sutherland as one pair of identical twin siblings in this unfunny Borscht Belt take on the same material covered to equally questionable effect, albeit with a few much better lines, in Cheech and Chong's The Corsican Brothers years later. After a stunt-casting cameo but none of them Orson Welles, we get dumped in the middle of a lavishly budgeted but decidedly Borscht Belt 60s-style comedy stinker where some rich French asshole stops overnight at a country inn so his wife can give birth to twins. Of course, the local porter's wife is also having twins on the same night with the expected mix-up ensuing. Years later, two of them are poor schlubs who wind up part of the French Revolution, while the other two are rich assholes with attitude. There's a comment made at one point to the effect of, oh, wonderful, now my son can grow up to oppress yours, who further happen to be the, quote, greatest swordsman in all France. The king engages the two rich ones to kill off a scheming prick and his entourage, but the slick bastard finds out and offers him each 25% of France after they kill the king for him instead, with him taking the other half. Meantime, the two poor ones get finagled in the busting of an arms deal. The two pairs of twins get swapped along the way, and it all goes as exactly as you expect it would. 
the level of humor here is pretty low. Mel Brooks was several steps up from this one, let's put it that way. The idea of comedy is to have Sutherland smash a grapefruit in his own face or have Wilder, the rich one, flip out neurotically anytime someone points out his beloved falcon he travels anywhere with is dead, or that he's crazy, period. You know the shtick he did in any number of Brooks pictures, Silver Streak, and Haunted Honeymoon. He was kind of one note as an actor. You'll notice there's no mention made of Sutherland, and that's because even more so than we'll encounter in Clute, he's something of a bit part even in his own co-leading role. For the most part, all he gets to do is the same as everyone else in the cast, bar Wilder, which is mug shamelessly and make goofy-ass faces like Charlie Callis or Sid Caesar. You could say he's playing it subdued, but in a supposed comedy this broad? Look, it's better than an Albert Zugsmith production, and probably on par with either your average Jamel Brooks film or the aforementioned Cheech and Chong career killer, but what the hell is that saying? Uh, this movie was hard to see for many years, and now it's, it, it popped up on one of these cable channels, and then I think there's a video on demand uh, from MGM or whoever this is, Warner Brothers. So you could see it that way. I don't think anybody would invest any more mon- money than they already did in putting out a better version of this. But uh, this 1970, so it just points out how long Gene, the late Gene Wilder has been around. No wonder why, uh, to no surprise, he was nearly 80 or over 80 when he passed. See, the guy's been around for a long time. And so is Sutherland. But Sutherland still looks pretty good. This is a weird kind of movie. Bud Gorkin was a TV director, and you know, it comes from that old school of TV comedies like All in the Family, that kind of thing. More like the monsters, actually. <laughs> or that, too, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's just, yeah, I, I didn't like it. I, I think this movie kind of failed. A lot of Bud Yorkin's feature films were weird things. I think he did Cold Turkey and those strange oddball pictures with Dick Van Dyke. He would make feature films with a lot of TV people. There's a lot of them in this. And they just, some people just don't adapt well to feature films. Donald Sutherland, I have to agree. Yeah, he's, he's like, he has a, it's almost like a, for a co-starring role, it's almost like he has a bit part because he's, he's underplaying to the histrionics uh, that are Gene Wilder in this one. Yeah, that's for sure. So next up is Kelly's Heroes. It's the second of three war films Sutherland would do, not counting MASH, which I felt was a real anomaly that would technically make it four, all of which, again, in my opinion, save MASH, were really quite good. This time around, Clint Eastwood's running a division of truce, which includes Brassy Telly Savalas, into Vichy, France, practically on the eve of VE Day. They capture a Nazi commandant who tells of a stash of Nazi gold nearby. Problem is, they stuck it in a bank vault behind the lines. So they hit up an increasing contingent of oddballs to work it so they all get a little payback for their wartime efforts, starting with arms supplier Don Rickles and expanding to his hippie armored tank division commander Donald Sutherland. From here, the rest of the film is a cross between heist and war film. Some deals are cut with a German tank division to split the spoils, and doofus officious types of Carol O'Connor and Gavin McLeod, yes, Archie Bunker and Captain Steubing themselves, get the bird as the survivors get a happy ending. You could tell it was the 70s. Nowadays, you have some jingoistic bullshit where everyone's a hero or whatever, and there'd be no plot. And that's just one more reason why this film is quite probably my all-time favorite war film, period. So, what's your take? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually like Brian Hutton, the director, his Weird Eagles Dare. That's a terrific Oh, that movie. is good, yeah. Odd, like, two years later, he, he goes back to the well again for another World War II theme picture. Reunites with Clint Eastwood, who uh, co-starred in Weird Eagles Day with Richard Burton. Talk about testosterone. 
but they had yeah oddball casting here you know besides Sullen you got Telly Savalos who was in the Dirty Dozen but but Sullen we just talked about that Don Rickles Carol O'Connor Don Rickles was famous at this point in his life for doing Vegas so he wasn't the big star that we you know know him to be nowadays yep. there's also like lots of characters in this too you got Harry Dean yes Harry Dean Stanton's in this Stuart Margolin who would go on as he got older to be more uh, have more to do in TV stuff also wound up directing a lot in TV uh, yeah mentioned Gavin McLeod I think MGM did not know what to do with this thing I think somebody said you're gonna get another Where Eagles Dare or another Dirty Dozen instead they had a heist movie with oddball characters and mash sensibilities. <laughs> yes, and, and even Eastwood is playing it kind of odd in this film. It's one of the few times he actually played, I would dare say, against type. And uh, MGM cut like nearly half an hour out of this thing. Uh, I don't know if they reinstated it. They probably did at this point. Strange movie. So, Tom Sullen is playing it as like this hippie guy, y'all. And it's really interesting. He's he's definitely in, inter, injecting you know uh, the seventies sensibility early seventies you know sensibility into like a stoner dude you know mm-hmm. yeah it's it's almost like Cheech and John go to war <laughs> uh, the heist itself is kind of like yeah but if you like good World War Two films you like all star cast and hey this, <laughs> this this cast is certainly strange. Um, it's a fun film, for sure. It's the most anti-war of war films that I can think of, and that's why that's I love it so you. much. That's true. <laughs> so next up, after a couple of minor things, you know, Johnny got his gun. Oh God, things like that. He winds up in Clute, quirky, kind of sexy neo-noir that's strangely much akin to play Misty for me and feel and approach. It's very well shot. I mean, this thing's covered in darkness and shadow throughout, yet entirely atmospheric and appropriate, and which in its grimly oppressive feel and underlying paranoia may actually have influenced a decade's worth of cinema. Then again, maybe it was just too much plot, the complete collapse of the hippie dream with any number of deaths, breakups, and incidents early on. Morris and Joplin, Hendrix, the Beatles, Manson, Altamont, Watergate. The framing story here involves Southern as a PI investigating a murder, using Fonda's well-dressed, shag-bedecked call girl as a major lead. So he actually rents a room in her building and taps her phone, dropping in on her every so often, until she starts to form an actual relationship with the guy. Hell, she keeps talking to a shrink throughout the film, and at one point, pretty much confesses she's fallen in love with the guy, which is ironic given just what a cipher Sutherland actually is here. Not many lines, no real emotion, just a lot of sad staring, while Fonda pulls one of those one-woman gab-fest shows they used to have back when, the vagina monologues without humor, I guess. He's at best a supporting actor, possibly less than that. This is a 100% Fonda show, for better or worse. The gardeners Rita Gam and Roy Scheider have bit parts as a madam and drug dealer, respectively. And even Edith Bunker herself, Maureen Stapleton, shows up as a receptionist at a tailor. But despite this film being named after Sutherland's private dick, it's really more about Fonda's hooker. Sort of a disnified take on the far more realistic and generally played for last Teresa Russell version of Ken Russell's Whore, which we talked about in our Ken Russell show. I am not and have never been a fan of Jane Fonda. Not only was she controversial in the 60s and a major sellout come the 80s, but her big roles, Barbara Roll through the China Syndrome, really never impressed me. She's too awkward and blowsy, too over the top to ever play subtlety or convey nuance, much less sensuality. She's like a barroom pickup, all in your face, overweight, overly made up, and quite unsexy. Particularly the more she tries to come off as such, there's nothing natural about her approach. To say that this film is probably the best she looked in dress may be true, but does that make her appealing in any way? So, I have very mixed feelings about it. It's a beautiful, beautifully shot film. It's got a lot of atmosphere, but 
Yeah, I mean, Sutherland's like playing it like he's invisible, and all you got is Fonda, which is not great. <laughs> well, I, I don't share your dislike with Jane Fonda, and I've never been overweight. Uh, she's <laughs> a fitness queen. But, but yeah. that's the example I'm using. Somebody in a bar that you find is completely unattractive, and that, that's what she reminds me of. Uh, I don't think she's unattractive. Not physically, but I'm talking about as a person. That's the persona we're getting across. Oh, the persona. It's like you get some old fat barfly coming on to you, all blowsy. I'm like, ah, jeez, really? <laughs> you mean you wouldn't do it? I mean, looks-wise, maybe, <laughs> but I regret it in the morning, I'll tell you that. <laughs> that yeah, that'd be right. like a walk of shame. <laughs> Just don't tell anybody. All right, so... I was last night. Well, in the morning... Well, the only time she could have got me was Spirits of the Dead. That that role worked. But otherwise... We should... See? Alright. I just... But you're going to like this. I dislike this film. I never liked Clue. I gave it a chance many times to enthrall me, to envelop me into its... It's, it's like a movie that's like, oh, this is one of the great movies of the 70s. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's it's just it doesn't get you know I Alan J. Pakalud made some good films uh, that they're up there uh, this is not to me one of them it just doesn't grab me um it just I don't know I, maybe I, I, the way I found I found Clute to be I don't know impenetrable in a way I did want to say you skipped by a big starring role for him. For Donald Sutherland, Paul Mazursky picture, another one of these uh, counterculture type things. Where he played a young film director called Alex in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. Very counterculture type picture. Ellen Bernstein's in it. Uh, actually, the directors, Paul Mazursky had a thing being in his own movies for a period. Not a great movie. I did see this. It's about a director who saw himself as this great arty film director and he had a, a blockbuster by accident, so they want him to make another big blockbuster hit. And you gotta like this cameo appearance by Fellini in a Donald Sutherland film. Ooh. Yeah, it's not a great film, but that was 1970, so but it was like his first huge starring role. Of course, it did absolutely nothing for him. <laughs> he went right into Clue. He did follow this up with this, also with Jay Fonda, your favorite. Uh, FTA, you know about FTA, right? No. There was uh, it was a documentary where Donald and Jane they're touring of Vietnam. Oh, okay. It's free the army tour. That's what it was yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. Was, was that the NRJ incident? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Yeah. Put them put them on a shit list for a lot of people. They performed at coffee houses, parks, sang, and yes. uh, they brought bands with them. And you know, I gotta say. For them, their heart was in the right place. Oh, you know, yeah. that felt like they wanted to do it, but America still did not embrace things. They still don't, you know. Mm-hmm. And that it also coming off the heels of that, I think it was a little sketchy for him for the next few years. They then teamed up on another oddball movie, oddball. Oddball. Steel Yard Blues. Did you see that? No, I did not. Yeah, yeah. This was a strange movie. It's like uh, Peter Boyle, Howard Hessman. It's about a bunch of misfits in life. Uh, he uh, Sutherland played an ex-con. There's a passion for demolition derbies. You remember the demolition derbies? You saw him on Sunday morning. He violates his parole by doing something. I don't remember what the hell it was. Anyway, he hooks up with Jane Fonda's character. and They just... <laughs> These odd creature types 
get to do a heist. And do you ever watch a movie where you lose interest while you're watching it? That <laughs> yes. <laughs> often nowadays. It's one of those. Although he rebounded pretty good with Lady Ice. Yes. Which we, we we spoke about this recently, didn't we? I don't know if we did. I know you did with the Jennifer O'Neill thing, but and I'm definitely going to speak about it soon. Okay, go ahead. Let's go to Lady Ice. Yeah, actually, think about the FDA thing. I, I don't remember that movie itself, the documentary, but I did see, obviously, snippets of the whole Hanoi Jane thing with her sitting on the tanks and commiserating with the Viet Cong. And like you said, while they, I do think they had their hearts in the right place, both of them, just in terms of an anti-war effort, to be sitting there so openly supporting what amounted to the communists at a time that was so charged, we had so many difficulties with that war, uh, I mean, it's not even worth getting into. Even the people that were involved had very mixed feelings about it. And the whole thing with, oh, you can only bomb here and you can fight there, but then you can't fight over here. And then people are sending, like, you know, children and women with, like, bombs up to you. Like, oh, yeah, here's a nice kid coming. Boom. Okay, maybe I can shoot him down. And you, you really, the people that came back from that war, God bless them, most of them were really traumatized for life or for many, many years thereafter. I grew up with people that were all Vietnam PTSD types before they knew what PTSD was. Uh, mm. They were just like, it was like the Vietnam syndrome, you know, they were shell shocked. But it was more like pointed towards Vietnam than any other war we'd been in. And for her to be doing that, whatever the sentiment was just like, like I said, I have very mixed feelings about Jane Fonda per se. And then later on, for her to be such a sellout, you know, marrying some rich guy and doing aerobics videos and shit. I was like, you know, fuck this woman. <laughs> so that's where a lot of that comes Completely from. Completely without camel toe. You know, I mean, you, you, do those, you do those videos and then you don't have that. I mean, jeez. Yeah, I'd, anyway. I'd rather watch those uh, ones they had on HBO there, whatever the hell they called them. I mentioned it before, those aerobicized over there were. They used to show yeah. these, those were great. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> It, it, it made us the the, the uh, aerobic people that we are today. I forgot. I just ruined my own show. Forget it. I wish I could remember the name of those things. I mentioned them in previous shows, I know. So anyway, next up is Lady Ice. Screw you. I bet you'd like to. So begins the convoluted romance between our two leads, one a flirtatiously obnoxious rich bitch, the other an insouciant hippie type, ostensibly working as a mechanic for her daddy's company. He gets called on the carpet, he mouths off to the boss and he gets canned, so he steals her car, but it's okay because he leaves her on the other side of the drawbridge, he loses her at, and then busts into her house where she's swimming naked to continue making passes at her, and through all this she's quite receptive, mind. The guy puts in quite an effort just to get laid. No gunman, not much of a mechanic, and a flop as a sex maniac. What do you do? Jennifer O'Neill, pretty and prolific 70s model and star of Lucio Fulci's The Psychic and Chuck Norris's A Force of One, joins soap star Eric Braden, crusty old Patrick McGee, and Robert Duvall in this big-budget version of Banachek with Sutherland as a less likable version of George Pappard. Seriously, that's it. He's an insurance investigator out to find out who pulled off a diamond robbery and recover the goods. Papard was a better dresser, had an awesome chest-plating intellectual of a sidekick, and pulled it off with far more panache. But in a way, it's not even really what this one's about. It's more about the oddball relationship between our two leads. She has got us right by the wrist. I don't think that's where she's got us. It's always fun to see the more likable, laid-back, hippie-style Sutherland, the one of Kelly's Heroes, Mash and Animal House, hell, even the Rosary Murders. And this is probably one of the better examples of Sam for all his quirks and a very 70s romance. The drinking game is to see how many counts he'd be charged on after the arrest, just from his pursuit of O'Neill. It's, it's, it's a, uh, I don't know, what do you call a movie like this? Quirky, crying, comedy, melodrama? Because this, this hits all those 
those those niches. You know, it's not it, it tries to be romance, but these early seventies pictures, you know, like cold romance. You know, mm-hmm. cold romance. It's like uh, so. <laughs> it's it's almost like when somebody's pursuing the object of their affections in this room comes creepy. Yes, and of course. Donald Sutherland, so you know it's <laughs> it, it becomes creepy, er, and so uh, I don't think it's wholly successful. But I haven't seen it in many years. So that being said, I understand the Scorpion or somebody just put this or Shout Factory just put this out again. I'd be willing to take another look at it again. Maybe I'll feel differently about it. It's enjoyable enough, but like I said, how many counts would this guy be up on nowadays just for what he was doing to, to get her laid? <laughs> well, he so, does. Yeah. Oh, so. he does, but yeah, I mean, it shows it's a different time. Uh, so anyway, next up, he does Don't Look Now. It's a well-shot, often fascinating, acquired character study by the always quirky Nicholas Rogue, the husband of Teresa Russell, who would make a career of taking the starring role in her hubby's unusual pictures from at least 1980 through 1991. Here, the likability comes down to the Venice setting and the dry but realistic relationship between the then-much-fated Julie Christie and Sutherland. She's prone to going around in see-through outfits and showing off her huge nipples, and they're pretty casual about going around in various stages undressed, complete with a lengthy banging session early in the picture that almost feels legit. She may be small-breasted, overly skinny, and afflicted with smoker's teeth, but at least she lets her pit hair grow, among other things. She's all natural, and that's good by me. Could have done without getting <laughs> dumpy-ass shots of Sutherland, but that's just me. I guess what's good for the goose is good for the gander and all that. He's in Italy to restore some frescoes and such to a decaying old church. Shades of Michele Suave and La Chiesa, or the House of Laughing Windows, and they're both trying to get on with their lives after their daughter drowned in shallow water for some reason. Unfortunately, they run to two creepy old bags who stare at them, smack into them, and make a big scene about losing a contact or whatever, which prompts her to go help. This gives them an opening to drop some horse shit about the blind one being a psychic and seeing their dead daughter sitting with them, yeah, whatever. From here on out, her fragile sense of sanity begins to fray at the seams. People must have been really on bad drugs back then. And even he starts to buy into the bullshit after he has an accident they may or may not have predicted. Before you know it, they're running around chasing ghosts, and he winds up getting stabbed by an ugly little killer dwarf. What's the likelihood of that? Like, hey, let me go talk to this little girl who's dressed like my dead gorder. Yeah! Midget Psycho, welcome to the Jollo pages. Not a great film, much less another one possibly granted that best British film ever made bullshit. Just how many of those are there anyway? And are any of them really any that damn good in the first place? But certainly very watchable and atmospheric if a very slow burn. This is a strange movie. I, I never really warmed to it. It's got a lot of it's got a lot of fans, and it's got a lot of detractors, and I feel, I fall somewhere in the middle. Yeah, same here. I don't dislike it immensely. I don't like it immensely. I I, I just... Well, Nicholas Rogue has a very strange style of filmmaking. Always did. I think, for me, his best picture may have been The Man Who Fell to Earth, <laughs> which is a problematic movie, right? Yeah. Here we go more with that. Mm-hmm. Um... We talked about that during our Bowie show, by the way, which was actually the Toast of Those Fallen, those who want to dig back. So, you know, he's very... Uh, even the performance. Another another picture along these lines of very strangeness. Yeah. Now, you, you, you brought up the sensuality in this film between these two leads. I mean, legend has it. It's been, it's been denied, implied, denied, implied, agreed upon, and then denied again. That some of those scenes were actually real. It looks it, it feels it. 
it looks and it feels that they even got remember Playboy magazine used to do the sex in the cinema thing mm-hmm. once a year and they, they had these pretty explicit uh, even for Playboy uh, uh, stills and it's funny this is like a proto giallo in a way it's just <sighs> he has such an odd style of filmmaking that plays with time and space Like something I said earlier in this show, uh, sometimes you have to go back and take another look at something like this movie. And it's actually on my list. I've seen it several times, but I haven't seen it in a while. So it's a film I'm willing to go take another look at to see if I truly feel the same way about it. Or maybe with older appreciation of seeing so many films, so many styles of filmmaking, that Nicholas Rogue is no longer as unique as he once appeared to seem, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot, that we've seen a lot of stuff now, like even in B-movies, people u- utilizing that style. You know, it's it's not to call it commonplace, but it's it's certainly there. And yeah, I, I, I have to take another look at Don't Look Now. He's certainly really good in it, that's for sure. Yeah, and I said that I agree with you that I'm kind of in the middle compared to people that think it's the greatest film ever made and people that just hate it. And that's true, but I do lean towards liking it, certainly. I do think it's decent and very close to Jala, which is why I have it. So, next up, well, not directly next up, but the next thing I'm going to touch on is Spies, which is with all those yeah. little stars between it, like MASH. It reunites Southern with his MASH co-star, Elliot Gould, this time in a buddy cop, well, CIA agent comedy that pretty much shows what a bunch of fucking idiots the CIA actually are. These two screw up every mission they take on to the point where they wind up on everyone's hit list, friend and foe alike. But it's all about the comedy and the weird bits, like when they drop by Southern's French Squeeze, who's actually former Ye-Ye star Zuzu, for those interested in 60s French pop, only to find out she's already banging two other guys at once. Sutherland gets embarrassed and scrambles to safety, sending Gould in for a joke, only for him to stay the night while giggles and such come through the door. Yep, it's very 70s like that. Oh, and they all turn out to be Weatherman-style revolutionaries, which is hardly a surprise given all the Che Guevara posters and such on our flat walls. It all ends in a Hudson Hawk thing where the two go skipping down the road singing side by side. There was trouble behind the scenes as well. Apparently, Gould wanted to swap roles with Sutherland, which almost killed the film on day one, as the director was concerned about outside investors and their expectations, but it turned into such a brouhaha that they wound up playing it as written. And they almost killed the stunt driver, but hey, that's Hollywood. Given how much I tend to enjoy both Ben's work in the 70s, and I do intend to do a Gelly Gould show sometime soon, you would think this one would have come off so much better than it actually does. It's kind of a misfire, but it's a likable one in a weird way. Yeah, it's... it's um. I think I agree with everything you said about this film. I, I saw it, when I, in the theater when it first came out, and uh, I was curious to see that they pretty much were holding up the the lion's share of the weight, and the you know, in terms of being like the only huge stars in this film at this time. Yeah. You know, and like Zuzu, who kind of fed into that really super thin varying on anorexic French big hair thing like with pointy nipple kind of girl <laughs> you know uh, she was really hot yeah you know and then, and then I had to see every Zuzu film I could get my hands on for but, a time but didn't she actually have a bad ending where she got involved with drugs and ended up dying that I one? think so I think so, but the the the, the, the supporting cast this is weird. Yes. Yo, we got we got like Vladek Shabal, you know, we know him. Mm-hmm. He played bad spy guy in quite a Lots few movies. Uh, Nigel Hawthorne, the recognizable uh, sinister, heavy brow kind of guy. Kenneth Griffin, 
Shane Remmer, who was in uh, uh, a couple of Bond things. Joss Auckland, who actually got a rebirth with uh, one of the Lethal Weapons. I think the second one or the third one as a villain. Really just like interestingly cast for the supporting roles, making Elliot Gould and Don Sutherland really stand out for their major roles. You know, like, it was almost like, uh, you know, hire two Shakespearean actors and have them supported by amateur group. You know, but they're not strictly amateur. Strange movie. It's also Irving Kirshner film, who did The Empire Strikes Back. That Irving Kirshner, uh, four years later, five years later. So, not an entire misfire. I actually would recommend this. It's definitely a pop culture movie of its time. Yeah, I like it for what it's worth. It's just, uh, you know, as a pure film, it's like, yeah, I can see this didn't work. <laughs> and then and then Sutherland spends three years making the strangest freaking movies. Yeah, I was actually going to jump ahead to Fellini's Casanova, but did you need to mention either Day of the Locust or 1900? Yes, I did. Go for it. <laughs> I figured you would. They, Day of the Locust now. John Schlesinger, who's made some good films. I don't want to get into this whole thing, because it's just like another thing, but Today the Locust is this really bizarre behemoth of a film. It's like almost, it's a, a two hours and 20 minutes long. It's a it's a counterculture post-counterculture take on the Hollywood of the 30s mm-hmm. and the stuff that, you know, uh, the, you remember how Kenneth Anger, Hollywood Babylon, Kenneth Anger mm-hmm. kind of just took a naked eye, so to speak, toward the debauchery and the stuff that was going on in Hollywood and silent era, the early talkies, up to like the period of the noirs and beyond. Mm-hmm. And you know, just laid it all out beer a bear, B A R E. And and this is like some film version of like the Kenneth Anger thing. You know, it's like uh you know, you have this starlet, which is Karen Black. You know, big starring role for her in this, this cynical Hollywood of the thirties, and you know she's bouncing back and forth from person to person to trying to be an actress. You know, I don't want to fill in the blanks there, but you can get it. Mm-hmm. And you know, then is the guy who loves her. Then is the simpleton who she abuses, but he truly does love her. That's played by Donald Sutherland, Burgess Meredith. John Hillerman, Richard Dysart, it's a very unusual cast, it's a very black movie, and I think it has a very apocalyptic ending, I don't want to get into it, it's a very just raw Hollywood film, Waldo Stoll, who uh, who uh, did the screenplay for this, uh, he was somebody I think who may have been blacklisted, and it's one of his comeback films, but it was like so dark that people wanted to stay away from it. Very rough. Donald Sullivan's very good in it, but uh, really rough thing. Now, 1900, uh, it's a Bertolucci. Mm-hmm. It's one of Bertolucci's yay, way long movies. <laughs> uh, it's, it's about, I think it's four hours, yeah, five hours really long. long. Yeah. That's what they said. <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> I was waiting for you to slip one of those in. <laughs> Bung. Oh, oh, I got you back. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> Okay. So this this movie has uh, either his best friends or brothers. It's been so long. It's 317 minutes in the original version. So what is that? Five hours? Oh, minutes. So, yeah. so, so De Niro and Gerard Depardieu, before he became several Gerard Depardieu's, <laughs> uh, 
Our brothers are best friends. I forgot which. Please don't assassinate me. Uh, it's been a while. We'll grow up together in the fasc- fascist Italy. Dominique Sand is in this. Everyone remembers Dominique Sand. Mm-hmm. Laura Betty. Uh, Stefania Cassini, you know, from Suspiria. You know, there's quite a, quite a few interesting people in this. Alita Valley. There you go again. Stefania Sandrelli. Burt Lancaster. And Sutherland. It's a big cast. Morricone score. It's this thing, working class, growing up during a uh, time of fascism through the early uh, to mid-1940s, and then becoming wealthy and becoming poor. and be, You know, it's like, it's a big thing. Yeah. The movie was so unwieldy, they had to re-release it into two parts, and both of these were almost three hours long. So, <laughs> if anyone could sit through this, I mean, some people call it a classic. Some people, you know, he's certainly... The best friends, I believe they were. I'm correcting myself. He's certainly a good filmmaker. There's no dis- oh, yeah. dis- discounting that Bertolucci is, is, is or is not. He is a very good, good neorealist filmmaker. He's, yeah. Yes, but it was just that this is too wieldy. That's actually why I skipped it. <laughs> I was like, I'm not willing to sit through this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, dude, are you ready to jump into Casanova? Sure, if you're, so to speak? If you're done. So, yeah. next up, he does Fellini's Casanova. Typically overblown and bombastic Fellini effort with a decidedly effeminate, over-theatrical Sutherland running around in a bald skull cap with full-on drag queen makeup. In fact, this one's very much akin to his Satyricon around the same time in that, unlike his usual introspective and pointedly male obsessions with the female, both in form and the very Italian Madonna whore complex that drives their relations, it comes off more bisexually inclined at best, with so much makeup corpse-like visage women looking like Tammy Faye Baker, that fat bro from the Drew Carey show, guys in full lipstick, plucked eyebrows, eyeshadow, powder, and rouge, and such a ridiculously costumed cast of both sexes that it comes as like a cross between a late 70s disco fashion, think like Amy Stewart, Cher, Sky, and LaBelle here, and a drag show. In short, these two films are quite unlike almost anything else in the Fellini catalog, even Roma. You would think Ken Russell or Derek Jarman were involved instead. That said, the distinctly over-the-top feel, lush costumery and cinematography, and weird bloated humor are very much Fellini. The famed lover's exploits are filmed in a distinctly absurdist comedic style, and the director's obsession with, shall we say, interesting faces is present and accounted for. He actually gets not only Doris Wishman's rather hideously large-breasted Chesney Morgan in the cast, but Devil's Nightmare's Daniel Emil Fork for one distinctly homoerotic dinner and theater sequence, it looks straight out of Ken Russell's Salome's Last Dance. The only plus to the film is the ever-striking presence of one of my favorite girls of cinema, Tina Oman. Bizarre and really not my kind of Fellini at all. It's a very bizarre movie. This is a very strange movie. It was also one of Fellini's least successful films in terms of criticism and then box office. I think people didn't know what to think of this. It's funny, you know, Don Sutherland took a huge chance making this film. And it was around the same time that David Carradine did The Serpent's Egg for um, oh, the other weird iconoclastic filmmaker. Did Cries and Whispers, uh, Bergman. Bergman, yeah. Yeah, which is a very strange film, too. I mean, you got two big, almost counterculture icons at the time period making films for, like, big art house filmmakers, and they both are the probably the weirdest films in their entire filmography. <laughs> True. And that's a lot being said for Donald Sutherland. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and you know what's weird? Being that what the subject matter is for this movie is it it, it sometimes goes near on hardcore. Yes. And it, and, and yet, and yet it, it has a very disdainful, distasteful, 
lean toward its subject. It's almost like, why make a film about the, the greatest Italian lover if you really have no interest in the greatest... I felt like Fellini wasn't interested in this character. No, and if anything, he was making him very fey. <laughs> he was making him very fey, and it was making him uh, be surrounded by these uh, freak show-looking people. Mm -hmm. Actually, a much more successful, believe it or not, Casanova, it was also a two-parter was when John Holmes did it. And it was one of the better... <laughs> oh, I remember John that one, yeah. <laughs> it's not too bad, actually. It's not too bad, as, to, you know, as far as those things go. But, yes, it's not a successful Fellini film, but I give kudos to Donald Sutherland to... Uh, for even taking the part. For even taking the part. So, same year, he does The Eagle Has Landed. Sutherland steals the show from under a huge Starfucker cast that includes the likes of Michael Caine, which we talked about in our Michael Caine show, Robert Duvall, Jenny Agutter, Donald Pleasance, Gene Marsh, Treat Williams, of all people, Judy Geeson, Larry Hagman, and Ferdy Maine of The Vampire Happening, Fearless Vampire Killers, Vampire Lovers, and Win Eight Bells Tall. He's an IRA man recruited by the Nazis as part of a plot to kidnap Churchill from behind enemy lines, more or less with the aim of getting at Britain and in a sideways sort of way, aiding his own cause to weaken them and get them the hell out of Ireland. You can see why he's pretty non-committal and jovial throughout the picture. It goes all awry, but not before Sutherland gets plenty of time to fall in love with local girl Agatha. Well, she's hardly running around naked this time or what have you, but on the whole, who could blame the guy? And slip out of the action to at least get away, if not have a happy ending with his lady friend, in a film otherwise filled with casualties. It's not a great war film, but it's a very watchable one, not least due to Sutherland's jaunty Irishman hogging center stage, however unintended it may have been to the writer or director. It is a, I always thought this was a widely miscast picture. It's just got the most... This is one of those Sir Lou grade... ITC things. Yes. There was a period of time, five or six year period, where he was making uh, international films, mainly filmed in Europe, with a great American, you know, cast, you know, international cast, with one or two, maybe not at the top of their game, American actors or actresses, but supported by like who's who, and you know, you got a lot of people. In this, you know, all these star fucker movies, but you know, here's the problem. And, this happened in a couple of these Lou Grade pictures at this time period. Your problem was, so you might have gotten away with this in one of those, uh, or a couple of those, or many of those uh, Italian-German 60s uh, post-Spaghetti Western things where, remember when they were doing these uh, Euro World War II films, adventure movies? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like Frederick Stafford, the Germans were the heroes and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. and there were like other Germans that were not the heroes, and you you you're taking a big chance when you spend a lot of millions of dollars and make Michael Caine a bad guy and make Donald Sutherland like the least the lesser bad guy and Robert Duvall's there's like nobody likable in this movie even though they try to have a romance with this nice Irish woman played by Jenny Agutter you know it's it's full of Germans who are actually trying to infiltrate Europe you know the the British part of Europe the Irish coast for this thing I don't want to even get into. Laughable is Larry Hagman. Yes, that Larry <laughs> Hagman. Oh, yeah. As an as a, as a American soldier, colonel. I didn't like this. I didn't like a lot of those Luke Gray things. I actually warmed recently to Firepower with a very strangely cast James Coburn and uh, Sophia Loren. We have to talk about that film one day. I like that one, yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, Eagles left the box office, though. Probably on the star cast alone, but... Probably not enough to keep Lou Grade from, you know, making these kind of things. 
so now his counterculture predilections, I don't want to say bear fruit, but, you know, people that are involved in that kind of drag him in, like, oh, yeah, let's lose John Sullivan for this stuff. So he gets into two really bizarre pictures for him, one being the Kentucky Fried movie as the clumsy waiter in the segment That's Armageddon. Talk about a bit part. He's here for literally eight seconds, split into two four-second pratfalls as part of a trailer for a fake disaster film. You'll be scared shitless. That's it. Then he does Animal House, trashy but much-beloved frat boy movie which inspired decades' worth of hazing rituals and toga parties to come. John Belushi is most obnoxious, Amadeus himself, Tom Halsey, TV version of Belushi, Stephen First, and remember that short-lived Delta House show? Kevin Bacon and John mm. Vernon, who pretty much turned Dean Wormer into a career worth of practically identical characters. But is it really so funny or cool, much less to modernize? It's like the Bad News Bears, also much beloved of misbehaving grammar school kids at the time. Who the fuck can watch this shit now? Sutherland's barely a bit part as one of the professors at the college who's hip because he smokes grass. Highly overrated, but much beloved for some strange reason. Why, why, well, uh, you know, Kentucky Fried Movie is, 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 you know countercultural John Landis. Both of these actually. They must have known each other possibly. You know, Kentucky Fred movie is Kentucky Fred movie is uh I'm losing my train of thought here, hold on folks. <laughs> it's it's one of those early remember the Groove Tube? That was another one? Did they did like Saturday Night Live before Saturday well, right around the birth of Saturday Night Live. They did Saturday Night Live mini skit things. And that's what these these this picture was Kentucky Friday movie. Actually, some of it still stands up. I don't think it's as horrible as you think. I like National Lampoon's Animal House. It's got a lot of fun people in it. It's it's juvenile in a way, but it's also very cute, and warm at its center. So, dear. <laughs> so next up, The Great Train Robbery. We talked about this one during our Sean Connery show. It's one of the few actually enjoyable films in his non-Bond filmography. Sutherland is his sidekick, a lower-class cocking safecracker and pickpocket type who helps Connery with the more hands-on grunt work aspects of his heist. One of the more amusing bits is when he gets flustered having to go around a coffin and green face paint as the supposed cholera victim corpse, only to wind up stripped down to his skivvies thereafter. Their relationship isn't exactly on the level of Connery and Michael Caine and The Man Who Would Be King, but it's warm and amusing and they play off each other reasonably well. Well, it's a decent heist film. It's rather fun for a costume epic. All three leads, we'd already addressed Leslie Ann Down and her Mary Widow streak to this sequence in the Connery show, are likable and fun, and I just like this film, period. Anything you want to say about it that wasn't already said? What was that? What movie? Oh, The Great Trick. No, we, we, just, yeah, we just covered that with the Connery show. Yeah, no, we're good. All right, so next up is the Invasion of a Body Snatcher. Yes. Having just rewatched both films recently, I can confirm a long-standing suspicion that this is one of the all-too-rare cases where the remake equals, and in this case, surpasses the original. Mm. Yes. Sutherland is the health inspector, sticking at the snooty restaurateurs who try to pass off rat turds as capers to their high-paying customers. And his girlfriend is the annoying sub-Margot kidder Brooke Adams of Shockwaves and the Stuff who works in a medical lab. They're actually having a sort of affair as she's living with some jock who barely notices her. And in their circle is Leonard Nimoy as the obnoxious self-help author and psychologist. And Jeff Goldblum is an ersatz poet and co-owner of the local Turkish bathhouse. <laughs> Even on a basic monster movie level, this one beats the living shit out of the original with creepy special effects, a grim claustrophobic tone, dark lighting, and the pod people's weird autistic lack of emotion. Which also points to its relevance today, especially if your areas like ours practically overrun with those very obviously, quote, on the spectrum and their beleaguered, prematurely aging parents and caregivers. And the eerie air squeezed out of a balloon pig squeal noise as they make as they open their eyes and mouths and point at those still capable of thinking and feeling for themselves. 
where Carpenter's The Thing can be taken as a very different but arguably at least equal effort to the one of a Hawks original, there's simply no comparison between the Don Siegel communist paranoia film, which echoed and supported rather than based the McCarthyism, blacklist paranoia, and neighbor pitted against neighbor of Sarah, had a middling to weak cast, the best of whom were noted drunk Kevin McCarthy and Morticia Adams and Marcia Queen of Diamonds herself, Carolyn Jones, and while entertaining enough as sci-fi of Sarah, just doesn't deliver the body slam this one manages to. Instead, like Rabbit or Thirst or even Shivers, this is more of an indictment of 70s me culture, the selfishness and vapidity of everyone around you, the meaninglessness of their lives, and the darker, more callous and different natures hiding beneath what are often seen as pleasant even, as I've heard many attributed to the eternally angry and dominatingly selfish Catholic Gifford. So warm and genuine. Yeah, right. It's like waking up and realizing that everyone around you is on a different wavelength, that they have sex without love, they act without reason, they support people and institutions that hurt not only other people but all of us, and that they're rabid about it and willing to take you down in violent and subversive ways for opposing their insanity. At the time of this is a lambasting of 70s introspection and selfishness, it's become, as you can probably hear from what I just said, even more relevant in post-W, post-Tea Party, Trump's America, and Brexit Britain, realizing those, quote, nice people all around you are probably fucking monsters, you just don't know it yet. And worse, that there may be more of, quote, them than there are of, quote, you and those like-minded to yourself. It's an existential apprehension that Sartre was right with no exit. Hell is other people. It's a relentlessly dark film, far more subtle and saying much more than the original's rather simplistic, even wrong-headed message of support to a corrupt establishment. I always liked this film. It creeped the shit out of me as a kid. And again, having seen them within a few days of each other just before this show, however, coincidentally, there's no comparison. Better actors, arguably stronger direction, better special effects, a weird electronic score, and far more relevant to what's wrong with the world even today, 40 years on from its initial release, which says much more about just how much we stagnated culturally than how little music, fashion, and culture has shifted since the 90s, or how obsessed even the youngest crowd are with the 70s, 80s, and 90s before this interminable cultural ice age truly set in. Is your monologue over? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Damn. Uh, no, I, I can't possibly add to it. All that. But, uh, <laughs> no, it was a harsh very, moment. It, it's it's a very good film. It's it's jeez, uh, you, you 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 shot your wad all over the page, man. Yeah, it's just like uh, <laughs> it's like I can't add to that. Um, no, it's it's I still enjoy the 1956. I think it is uh, it's original. Fun. And actually, the uh, Abel Ferrara sequel to this follow-up, uh, Body Snatchers, is actually one of his best films. And people always discard that, disregard that, because it's not quirky enough. But this is a really good film. Uh, you got Leonard Nimoy was really good. I mean, everybody, Jeff Goldblum, everybody's, yeah, Jeff Goldblum, everybody's at the top of the game here. A lot of uh, Jeff went on to be the superstar he is today. I mean, still working, man, and... The only one that really didn't get a big bite of the apple out of this was Brooke Adams, who around the period of this film was in a few quirky horror or genre type things, and she never got the, the, the boost, you know, yeah. from this. She went back to theater, I think, pretty much. Or she did a couple small, smaller films. Poor Veronica Cartwright. <laughs> Poor Veronica Cartwright, because she, she's always getting the, the beleaguered friend. You know, she plays uh, Nimoy's uh, who's wife or girlfriend. She plays someone's girlfriend in this film. She's always becoming bedraggled, which is why every time we hear her in real life, she's, she's looking, she's about to fall apart. <laughs> she had a similar thing in, in the first Alien film, where, you know, she's just ready to just be signed up to, for a sanitarium for the rest of her life. You know, just... <laughs> 
But Donald Sutherland's really good. Excellent, excellent, oh, yeah. and 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 great, great performance by him. He really, you know, it's a Phil Kaufman too. It's a Phil Kaufman film. That guy really knows how to do ensemble pieces. The right stuff is one of my favorite films. I'm not one of these jingoistic rah rah guys, you know, with the army and stuff like that. But it's a film about men and hum humanity. I really like the right stuff, and this is another one of his really good films. Really like by Snatchers. Uh, you know what though? I don't like about it is the ending. It's, it's fucked up, and that's the thing about though. It, it also sp spoke to the the nihilistic attitude, but I guess I had to end that way. In the post Watergate era, everything was like that. Mm. Murder by Decree is next. We yes. touched on this well-appointed but quite overrated snooze fest of a Holmes film in our David Hemming show, and Sutherland has an effective bit part as a psychic with really tacky sideburns. <laughs> so anything else you want to say about this one that we didn't really cover? Oh, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I think it has a smaller part. It's it's a Bob Clark film, one of the, probably Bob Clark's best film, uh, director of Porky's and Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Great. I, I really like the casting of uh, uh, Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer's, uh, Christopher really? Plummer's, is Holmes, I really like, yeah, I didn't get a chance to say that before. And James Mason as Watson, I really like them. Really? I, I did, I liked them together. Uh, I thought they were so miscast. Hey, it's Eye of the Beholder, right? Yeah, and uh, it's a, another picture, The Study in Terror, also covers similar ground with John Neville as Holmes. Yes, uh, just as bad, if not worse. <laughs> yeah, I... I you know, I don't hate it. I I, I, I liked it. They're both watchable, so, let's put it that way. They're both watchable. And Sutherland has a small part. I think he did us a favor. We're going to go to Bear Island? Yeah, I don't have much to say about this one, except that it's an Alistair McLean novel, uh, but I have not seen it. I think it's only on, like, Region 2 or something. So. Yeah, I had seen this. It was on cable years ago. It's by Don Sharp, who did that great, uh, uh, thrilling puppet on chain. So remains one of that the great, great Alistair yeah. McLean. That thing is great, man. Wow. If we did an Alistair McLean show, it'd be like, that was the only good movie. <laughs> well, that's not true. Where he goes, <laughs> well, no, also... where he goes there, and I kind of like yeah. Caravan the Vicaris. I think you like that as well. We talked about yeah, that in the Ramp on show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, there's a lot of missteps. This is yes. one where uh, it's basically another Agatha Christie, actually, type-esque thing, like... There's some, you know, they're up there in the barren Arctic, and you know, this you got scientists and you got people from all German U-boats, the Second World War, and you know, it's 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 cast like a Sir Lou Gray picture, and it's not a Sir Lou <laughs> Gray picture. I was just talking about, remember the Sir Lou, uh, Sir Lou Gray's all uh, all international cast, you know, you got Richard Widmark in this as a German, of course. <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Lee, Lloyd Bridges, Barbara Parkins, who was the it girl for a while, but this was past that. Vanessa Redgrave is in this. I just can't recall much about that about the film except that it was a really good looking, rugged looking Donald Sutherland was like the hero of this thing. And it was just they were striving to be you can't make this guy like a Chuck Norris, like a, a superhero guy, it just didn't work. Although, you know, kudos for trying, but it was just, it became a lesser of the Alistair McLean success stories, that's for yeah. sure. He went right to, uh, if not an Academy Award, Golden Globe for Ordinary People. You want to yeah. cover that? 
So, ordinary people, an Oscar-winning stinker about a family falling apart after one of their sons died, and no one can seem to lean on or relate to one another due to varying degrees of survivor guilt and some misguided attempts to keep up appearances for the neighbors. It's got Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, and Timothy Hutton in the supporting cast, so you know this one's going to be a winner. The Ice Storm had nothing on crap like this. Kramer vs. Kramer on Golden Pond, this all came out around 1980. Not for nothing was this at least one of the aforementioned films utilized as a torture device in at least one comedy film thereafter. I can't remember, but I know that they had... Oh, you're going to sit there and watch Kramer versus Kramer on an infinite repeat. And the guy's like, no! <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. But, of course, you know, it was not Oscar-nominated, so that says something about the Oscars. Um, It was... Yeah, it's Robert Redford who, who makes good movies. I'm not going to take that away from Robert Redford. Uh, this was just heavy. You know, it's this at that time period where... A lot of these big Oscar bait movies were heavy pictures, and you just had dysfunctional family, the the suicide, uh, death of a child, and you know. But Southern was bringing an A game like no tomorrow to this. He really, really did good work here. I mean, the guy was like bang out of nowhere. Uh, I think personally, I feel he got slighted by all the uh, the award season people. You know, they tend to do these things once a year because he was so good. And they just bestowed awards and stuff all over the place. Mary Tyler Moore, Timothy Hutton, best supporting actor and uh, screenplay director, picture. Not my kind of movie, but I will I will admit that again, Donald Sutherland was so good in it, and he should have been. If you're gonna recognize a lot of people, this was an atyp, uh, a not a typical role for him. This was something very different, and he was very good in it. So next up, he does something called Gas, which I think was kind of a belated take on the whole OPEC oil crisis that was going on under Carter. You know, like an American kind of a thing, but a few years too late now. And then he winds up in Eye of the Needle. Boring. It's shot like a British TV movie of the period. Think like Miss Marple or Poirot, if not Inspector Maigret here. This one's about Merchant Ivory type Kate Nelligan having the most snooze-inducing piece on the side ever set to celluloid with Sutherland's stranded Nazi spy while her crippled and bitter husband arches his eyebrows and scowls at what's going on. Who gives a shit? This is the kind of film that old ladies love in between Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, and CSI or CIS where he runs an offshoot. It's, it's complete crap. I guess you didn't like Ugh. it. God. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, this actually did very well in the theater, but but uh, and you know for the romantic romanticism that it it's allegedly put forth. <laughs> he said allegedly. The thing was, <laughs> yeah, there, there. You know, Kate Nelligan was another one of these theater and television actresses. They tried to make a thing for a brief period of time. She was in uh, the Frank Langella Dracula. You remember? Oh, yeah. She came out of nowhere. That was great. She came out of she came out of nowhere and she went back to nowhere. <laughs> uh, but there was a brief, you know, three, four, or five years maybe they tried to, hey, let's put her in a movie with a big star, and like nobody wants to see it. <laughs> so um, there's that, and uh, it's. For some reason, you know, after having a couple of home runs and after doing so well with ordinary people, he, I don't know, for whatever reason, and maybe he was directed to do it that way, that Southern plays the film very cold, yeah. very steely, very icily, so you can't warn, and also, he's an unlikable person, he's a, he's a spy, you know. A Nazi spy. A, a Nazi spy, yeah, here we go again with this Nazi spy stuff, didn't he just do this part, like, Four years earlier, mm-hmm. so uh, it just didn't really do much for a lot of people, and certainly not for him. Yeah. So then he does actually a couple of weird comedies. Max Dugan returns. I barely remember that. 
and heaven help us where he's brother thaddeus a weird variant of the teen sex comedy so prevalent during that decade centered on a catholic all-boys school run by a bunch of uptight nazi-style brothers sutherland's the smirking but ridiculously authoritarian principal who makes the unruly youth undergo various forms of late capital punishment for a series of sophomoric pranks it's pretty fucking tame compared to the sort of thing that was going on in grammar high schools all through the 70s and 80s particularly the grammar school i went to which was prison rules and run by the inmates i got a book's worth of stories from eight years in that place but apparently resonated with my drummer who went to catholic school right up to college and used to cite this film which i had never seen it until reviewing for the show as what his experience was like so it's sort of an endearing in an american graffiti kind of a way and at least they have that tomboy running the local soda shop with some sort of distaff interest but there's much more than a little homoeroticism to this whole affair particularly when they all have to swim laps naked as punishment plus evil ed stephen jeffries the future gay porn star is president accounted for as the guy who <laughs> it, listen to this as the guy who jerks off constantly that's his entire role even in the cafeteria and the restroom stalls and everybody knows about it it's like a running gag oh how you doing in there <laughs> really <laughs> so yeah it's a piece of work and so in this unrewarding authoritarian role throughout um i <laughs> really don't have anything to say about that film so it's better reason. off with good reason. So next up, uh, he actually shows up in a Kate Bush video for cloud busting as Wilhelm Reich, of all things, the guy who invented uh, the whole thing about orgone, you know, the, the whole sexual therapy thing that kind of drove the 70s. And I know that uh, Jack Nicholson was a big fan of that. He pops up in The Rosary Murders in 1987. Interesting tidbit. Believe it or not, one of the priests here is Dr. Lang from Dark Shadows, Addison Powell, who was like 100 back in the late 60s. How the hell are you still alive for this? I don't know. Fred Walton, who directed two subpar slashers, When a Stranger Calls with Carol Kane and the comedy slasher April Fool's Day, brings a weird, very TV movie feel to this one, which may be apropos given his move to exclusively TV movies hereafter. I guess someone clued him in. Anyway, this one was co-written by Elmore Leonard, of all people, but don't expect another 52 pickup, much less Mr. Majestic here. It's a tried-and-true staple of crime TV, where a priest can't tell what he knows from confession. Yeah, yeah, Father Dowling, Father Brown, Father Vivian Oblivion, same shit, different day. What saves this one is the weird who gets to see this stuff atmosphere of all this old church and rectory business not to mention that it was shot in the south side of detroit what gives a bit of grit to the proceedings that wouldn't have been there otherwise even so the director squanders the opportunity leaving most of this feeling quite set down okay catholic she gave up that claim when she put her ankles behind her ears in the back seat of his car why can't we be more concerned with peace of mind and not peace of ass Sutherland's a warm-hearted liberal priest, working with an uptight, hardcore conservative type, this asshole Charles Durning. And there's many instances of nuns meeting guys and leaving the order to get married, or trying to baptize kids born out of wedlock or what have you that he's okay with, being as empathetic and understanding as you expect a follower of Jesus to be. While Durning sabotages his efforts, pulling a hard-line, stone-the-center thing throughout, while delivering tired, fire, and brimstone sermons on repeat. He's pretty detestable. You'd probably find him harassing girls outside the local Planned Parenthood and grousing about Pope Francis's liberality nowadays. The annoying character actress Belinda Bauer is his co-conspirator of a local reporter. The two of them hunting down clues to just who this nut job is that's killing off priests and nuns and leaving a set of black rosary beads at every murder scene and who confessed to Sutherland in the middle of high mass. It all wraps up in another slap to the face of the glib arch-conservative Durning and a positively terrible theme song plays. I think this is in the hands of a more capable director done in the 70s and or with a stronger supporting cast, this could have been one hell of a film. As it is, it feels just like late 80s, even 90s television. Sutherland's fine, but there's simply not a lot you can do with the role of a priest, even a more human and liberal one, and the drab cinematography and irregular use of what could have been some strong location work just comes off sort of blah. Yeah, I, I, I thought it felt very TV-ish, hmm. and um, 
It had a really good poster, and it had, a, a, I recall, a really good trailer as well that was trying to sell this. But they kind of soft-pedaled, you know, and when you're making a film about this subject matter, and then you soft-pedal it a little bit, and it winds up being like, well, was this just an HBO, which was <laughs> a prime a prime thing? And it wound up being, oddly enough, a mainstay on HBO after a while, mm. because like it just did not do well in theaters. And then before you knew about it, Boom! Yep. You know, it's it's always on cable. It's that kind of thing, and it's the kind of thing that was on cable, and nobody watched it. So, yep. so he was in a few things after that. You know, the trouble with spies, lock up, backdraft, JFK. But the next one I was going to address was Buffy the Vampire Slayer in '92. Mm, um, but 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 you're skipping a dry white season where he went head to toe with Marlon Brando. Go for it. It's a uh, I'm trying to see here. It's about apartheid, and this is the pre. When we talk about apartheid nowadays, we always talk about Nelson Mandela. This is even before Mandela, and uh, this is, would be the mid '70s. I guess Mandela's still in prison, and it has to do. Well, Sullivan plays a South African school teacher at a school for whites only, and then you know his gardener, who's black, gets beaten by police. And then you know he has this change of heart, and you know he's actually speaks to Sutherland's counterculture things, you know, his, his you know, things inside him. And Brando, of all people, is a lawyer who represents uh, the black guy, and, and then Jurgen Prochnow, remember him? He's also in this, and Susan Sarandon's in this, and Janet Sussman, whatever happened to her. Really good. Donald Sutherland's really doing A-game work here, and he looks really good. And uh, it's it's like a heavy picture. Brando looks terrible in here. And he would live for another 10 to 15 years after this where he looked much better. I don't know what was going on here. But it's about apartheid. It's about fighting for justice in and injustice, injustice, a world filled with injustice. Not bad at all. And you also skipped Scream of Stone. No, just kidding. <laughs> JFK. You skipped. You skipped. Uh, JFK, the Oliver Stone film, yes. which talk about all-star cast. I mean, how many people remember Michael Rooker was in that thing? Yeah. But, but uh, you know, amongst the Tommy Lee Jones, Gary Oldman, Rooker, and this one and that one, Kevin Bacon, was Donald Sutherland as X, sort of like uh, one of the people that gives Kevin Costner's uh, lawyer, uh, investigating lawyer, information, uh, Jim Garrison, information about the JFK things. Sutherland had a small but very pivotal role in that. And uh, while it wasn't one of those as showy as Tommy Lee Jones as Clay Shaw was in this film, it was really good. It was really good. So, uh, good performance by him. Sometimes, you know, when you have little to work with and you're memorable, then it's it's really good. So, he's, he was still doing a game cameo thing. I think it was a favor because nearly everybody in Hollywood's in this film at the time. Now we go to Buffy. <laughs> so when I mentioned the other day, my wife asked, what show are we doing today? And I said, you know, we're doing Donald Sutherland. And her response was, oh, you mean the creepy, weird-looking guy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer? 
<laughs> so by this point, Sutherland's clearly running on fumes, showing up and stuff like this. Mind, this is not the likable cult television series with Sharon Michelle Gellar and company, but the box office flop of a cult film that sort of sideways inspired it, with dim bulb Christy Swanson in the title role, 90210's Luke Perry as the love interest, the late Luke Perry, and Donald Sutherland more or less in the Giles role as the guy who finds the Slayer and trains her, but he's a whole lot more creepy and stalkerish than on the TV show. I kind of liked it at the time, but it doesn't hold up incredibly well, and when Luke Perry is your main draw and the only believable character, your film may be in trouble. Honestly, I didn't even bother to try to see this one again for the show. I remembered it well enough from back when, and it wasn't exactly high on my list of contemporary cinema at the time. So what's your take? It's your turn, mentioned Buffy. I mean, I don't like the show or the movie, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it's funny how many people I run to, like, Buffy this, Buffy that, Buffy, Buffy, Buffy. Like, even people older than myself i'm like okay cool i get you i can't stand it so fine but did you see the puppet masters uh i've seen so many of those puppet master films which one was he in no no not that serious this is a standalone oh. movie with with that title no really good uh, it was in 94 it was uh directed by Stuart orme who pretty much does uh he was like uh, an editor and it's like one of the few films he actually directed. It's based on a Robert A. Heinlein. It's pretty damn good. It's like sort of Invasion of the Body Snatchers-esque. Flying Saucer lands in Iowa, CIA investigates, and pretty much all the major U.S. governments are investigating possible biological weapon that's been released. And this is a really creepy movie, and it's really good. Sutherland's really good in it, in a role that, in a way... You could tie into his appearance in the, although it's a different character, Body Snatchers film. Really recommend it. Rabbit A. Highlands, The Puppet Masters, nice. 1994. I don't want to give too much away because I saw this movie cold like, without knowing much about it. And I said, wow, how did I not know about this film? Fallen, did you see that? No. That's a great one. Great Denzel Washington, directed by theatrical director Gregory Hoblet. Uh, he didn't do many features. There's just some, but this is a very creepy movie. Stars uh, Denzel as a police detective investigating serial killer. And <laughs> a Rolling Stones song figures out figures into the whole thing. <laughs> it's brutal. It's nihilistic. It's very, very nasty film. This is one of those pictures I think Denzel would rather not have on his CV. <laughs> 1998 picture. It's very good though it's i was like blown away how they got away with a lot of things john goodman's also in this and beth davids who was the thing for a little while because of army of darkness which didn't do anything either <laughs> but james gandolfini's in this there's a lot of good people in this but uh Sutherland has a nice role in this again for those people who may not have seen this denzel washington film I really highly recommend it. I don't want to give too much away about this, just like the Puppet Masters, because it's like if Lewis Paul says you should see Fallen, I really recommend it. And then you can come back and tell me, wow. <laughs> so there's that. It's a supernatural thriller that's quite good. 
So he has sort of gone into decline at this point. There's not a lot of interest. He starts doing some voiceovers. He showed up in an episode of The Simpsons. He showed up in that horrible Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, the first movie that had nothing to do with any of the games. He did the remake of The Italian Job, a remake of Salem's Lot, a remake of Frankenstein, a miniseries. He was in Pride and Prejudice, one of the remakes in 2005. Basically, the next thing that I say is sort of of interest is way up in 2012, he does that stupid-ass thing that all his kids love, The Hunger Games, which is sort of a an American boulderization, making it safer for the YA crowd, of the excellent Battle Royale the Kenji Fukasaku movie, which was very nihilistic and dark and kind of made the careers of several people over there in Japan to the point where some of them started coming over and doing Tarantino moves and such like. But, yeah, I mean, it's not the worst thing ever, but if you've seen the original, it's no comparison. And actually, if you want to dig it up on Third Eye, I did a comparison of the two many, many years back. Just a casual write-up, because I was so, really? This, this is the best I can give you? So it's worth taking a look if you're interested. That's really all i got to say about it. He's the president. He's the baddie in it. And he's looking pretty old, which he is. But, you know, it pays the bills. <laughs> and he, obviously there was three of these movies, so paid a couple of bills for a couple of years. But, you know, nothing much else. I mean, Backdraft 2, he went to video. What else is there here? Well, yeah, he's actually not bad. He has, like, a nice shining part in the, the Jason Statham. And I like Jason. He's somebody we consider if you can't stand him on something else. But I, no, he's okay. I actually like Jason Statham. And his remake of The Mechanic is actually pretty decent. That's what Ben Foster it's not bad and Donald Sutherland has a nice key role in it. A nice bone that they threw him. You know, it's like, you know, we remembered you from back in the day and would you like to be in this? It's directed by Simon West. So it's you know, he's done some good things like Con Air and such, but what I really found interesting about this mechanic remake is that the screenplay was by Louis John Carlino, the sailor who fell from grace with the sea. And that's such a bizarre Chris Christopherson movie. Mm. Very strange film. Um, it's like a movie I, I found that annoyed me to no end. <laughs> but um, he also does he does appearances. Now, you 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 know mentioned a couple of things. He did Horrible Bosses, playing stoic boss-type guy, you know. And as you mentioned, The Hunger Games, as recently as... Oh, gosh. Uh, there was three of them, so the last one was like a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2015, right, yeah. As recently as a few weeks ago, I saw, saw there was a review of Variety, or was a Hollywood Reporter. He just appeared in another a feature called Measure of a Man. So, you know, he's still working. He's... He's an icon, you know. He's he's one of these guys you can't really say anything bad about, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's and why would we? Oh, Citizen X. The, he played a Russian. That was a TV thing, 1995. There was that whole case about the uh, Russian serial killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was quite good in that. I remember that. I'm just like just nitpicking, looking through his credits. So I think that's pretty much our Donald Sutherland show. We we hit all the key high points. He's still working. God bless him. Yeah. He's, how old is he? 1935. Wow, he's old. Okay. We're talking about... Oh, uh, well, he's... Pushing 90, he's, huh? He's, 83. Yeah. He's 83, but, you know, God bless him. He looks good. still out there. But that age, he looks great. <laughs> yeah, so, you know... Oh, and the Italian job. Another Jason Statham book up there. That was a fun film. I liked that. It was a good remake. He was in a terrible Pride and Prejudice, but the less said about that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... Because if it was any good, we would talk about it. Yeah. Anyway, oh, because we talk politics, he is a member of, are you ready? Okay. The New Democratic Party. Uh-huh. 
Interesting. The Social Democratic Federal Political Party in Canada formed in 61. So it might be something uh, of interest to people. That's, I think, pretty much our show. Also, you kind of just Kiefer Sutherland there at the outset. <laughs> They're opening up. I like Kiefer a lot. Special tw- I like 24. That's a good show. Okay. Uh, that, was a, that was a good show there. So Take it easy, dear. To me, it's just like All a schlep right. actor. He's never really done anything of note, but hey, whatever. <laughs> that is something of note. Seven years of a great show? Come on. All right. Anyway, this is our Donald Sutherland show. All right. Uh, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing tat on Donald Sutherland. Next time, I'm not sure which one we're going to be doing. I am working on researching for an Elliot Gould show, and I know we talked about doing a Chuck Norris show. What are you, what are you looking for? What do you think you want to do next time? Oh, do something a little easier. Let's do... Because Elliot Gould's another similarly oddball thing. Let's do Chuck. Okay. So uh, next time we will do the... <laughs> wow, I don't even know what you want to call him. Because I always think of him as that kind of introspective, philosophical karate guy. But now these people are associated more with right-wing politics and Walker, Texas Ranger. Not to mention the Bowflex ab master. Or whatever yeah, but, st- <laughs> but still, the, you know, yeah. before before he lost his mind and became a right-wing nutjob, yeah. he was... He did some good films. He, I really appreciated him all through the 70s yeah, and he was fair portion of the 80s. I like the way he was introspective. He, he applied some of Bruce Lee's processes very much so very much so yeah let's do chuck norris is next folks all right so if you'd like to contact us here comments suggestions or you're a filmmaker or musician like to join us on here drop us a line on our facebook page facebook.com forward slash weird scenes one or our website weird scenes one.wordpress.com we're also on twitter at weird scenes one or you could follow us right at third cinema.podbean.com you can also find us on itunes you're better off just looking us up as the third eye cinema weird scenes inside the gold mine podcast but the id for those who are so inclined is five five three four oh two oh four four and weird scenes inside the gold mine brought to you by the new and Third SM on Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, anything else you want to say to close out? Or? No, no, thanks for listening. And yeah, hopefully, maybe we talked about a few Donald Sullivan films and make you want to check them out. We don't always do that, too. We usually end up going, wow, they did more stinkers than we thought. But, uh, <laughs> no, this is filmography. It's very impressive. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. All
How's everything? Oh, it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> you seem to be having a run of bad luck lately. What's going down? I don't know. It's a run of bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Then there was Chiller, which, I don't know, it was really, it was a hardly heavy rain day, and I knew I was low energy, and, you know, I got out there, and I was like, oh, I have all this stuff to do. It's probably the first one in recent memory I did not hang late with the staff. Yeah, like 10.30, I'm in my room. Also, because it was, you know, up there in Parsippany, <laughs> you would have thought it was October. It was cold, and it was rainy, and it was in the 40s, and I'm like... I, I'm not killing myself <laughs> to hang out, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. And be- because of the rain, everybody put up tents and uh, outside their uh, their rooms that were in the courtyard. And I said, you know what? This is not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was Friday and Saturday. I had seven of these things. I think I'll post record for me. And uh, they pretty much all worked the Billy Zane thing was I didn't really want to do it and they kind of threw it at me and I was uh, okay you know I, I've done this before you know not really into it but I'll do it if the show promoter really wants a Billy Zane thing you know and uh, Friday night uh, you know you know how narrow those those hallways are sure you know and so I always like going the night before introducing myself if I can if I'm not too busy and say I'm going to come back early Saturday and then you know, reacquaint myself with with them and bring the person that hopefully will bring them to the speaking room. So Billy Zane, he had this huge, I don't know, seven foot high, three to four feet wide banner of him as the Phantom in the hallway. And they, they told him, you got to take that out of the hallway. And he was throwing a Billy Zane-ish shit fit. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll talk to this guy tomorrow. <laughs> The guy who brought him, uh, he used to bring Scott Wilson. I, I know it for a couple of years. I ran into him later on Friday night, and I said, hey, uh, you bring, you brought Billy Zane. He knows, yeah, yeah, he'll do it. I said, okay. He was really out of it. But, you know, Billy Zane showed up, so it began badly. The hotel staff totally screwed up. You notice, if you looked at any of those, we're sitting on chairs, and we usually have tables that are, you know, three or four tables wide with a nice drop, black drop cloth in the front. The chairs behind the tables. And there was nothing on the stage. Zilcho. So uh, I go in. We have minutes to spare. I know I can't track down these guys because it takes my half an hour to show up. No tables anywhere. So we, I just pull chairs from the end of aisles. And I said, okay, the biggest panel has nine people. I'm not doing this in front of a room full of people, so I'm going to put ten chairs up there, and we'll just make do. So, <laughs> oh, embarrassing. The Billy Zane thing. He came on, and I went to sit down, and I missed a chair. <laughs> but, I, but I did a save, but it was a weird moment. And right from there, he was a little aggro. You okay. know? And, you know, uh, I, I asked the the key points, I figure, okay, you're a dick, let me just ask, like, dead calm, tombstone, which he really didn't have much to say, this and that, that and this. Uh, the Phantom, he liked what I asked him, but then I got to Titanic, we're getting toward the end, and so, uh, tell me about working on Titanic. Silence. Beat. 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 I'm like, okay. 
It was hard. <laughs> Very dramatic. It was really hard. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, how many people have I ever spoken to work with Cameron? I didn't do one with, uh, uh, and I should have. I should have pushed them to do one because she's never been back from Terminator, from T2. Linda Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure she would have been sweet. So I asked him about Cameron, James Cameron, and he's like, yeah, he's in the water with you. Okay. You know, it's not what I'm fishing for, but... So I came to the guy and I said, oh, please thank Billy Zane for being here. And he... I put out my hand, and that's why I had to edit this thing, this raw footage. Because the girl who shot it, the usual guy couldn't make it. The lady who shot it, she just did a point-and-shoot and sat down. So I had a, I edited it out. I went right to the first question. I edited out me missing the chair almost. <laughs> and I edited it out. At the end, while they were applauding, I go to shake his hand. He jumped off the front of the stage and ran out. <laughs> wow. So you see me standing there just looking. Nonplussed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, what was that? Oh. Uh, <laughs> What was the other weird thing that happened was um, Shokasugi, nice guy. The guy with him was like contrated giant, this this big fan guy. You know, it's the kind of thing. They write to them to like, hey, I can be your agent. You know, and we should start doing this shit because you see the characters that show up. That, like last time, Bailing, there were these two young guys, and they were—I thought they were fans. She goes, "They're with, they're my agents." I'm like, "Yeah, you're probably banging out too." <laughs> so, I just—I guess people are contacting people, say, "I'm going to be your agent for the show. I can get you into shows and blah blah blah." So, Shokasugi had never done a show ever, yeah. which I was surprised at. And so his guy said, "Uh." I see he's doing a Q&A. He wants to do a demonstration. I said, what? I said, okay, we'll try to do something. So that's one you should watch. It's on my wall somewhere. Okay. Or you could just look on YouTube, Shokasugi, Chilothair. So he comes on with a big bag. And apparently the, the bag, I think it was a Costco bag. And he had stuff from Enter the Ninja and all these ninja movies. And then he hands me his two sheets of paper. He says, uh... We're going to first start with this. I will say these things, and you look for them, and then you explain it in English what they mean. So he goes into a stance. He does forms. He goes, oh. I'm looking, okay, what's the equivalent of oh? <laughs> and I said, the wind. You know, something like the wind lies fluttering upon the angry path. Hi, Josh. <laughs> the song comes out tomorrow against them on something bizarre. Then he missed one. And then, so I just said that. And then I step back, and he takes out these swords. Yes, swords. And he's doing this thing, and he's, you know. Then he starts taking questions. I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I got in a few, and, you know, there's the, the usual chiller psychopaths, like, screaming out stuff like they're in animals. Hey, how about that movie? I'm like, hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I was, that was quite an... Uh, Did you get any Ninja 3, the domination in? <laughs> I, you know, the way this thing was rolling, it was... I think he did mention that. I did not know, or if I did, I forgot, 
He was actually working in the Philippines, and he was a stuntman in the Philippines. And that's how he got discovered. Cannon was shooting a picture, and uh, Mike Stone, who we all know is Australian, does, you know, martial arts movies, and Mike Stone suddenly wasn't in this movie, and I think it was Engine and Ninja, so they just they saw this guy working, and they said, okay, uh, we'll, we'll have you on as a ninja in the costume, and they liked him so much, they figured that, hmm, you know, he's not an actor, but maybe he can act, and it just took off from there, and they, they started writing stuff for him as they were shooting. So, uh, yeah, that was fun, a little fly-by-your-pant kind of thing. But uh, Yeah, I can't remember what his first role was, the Octagon, or yeah, yeah. Anthony Ninja, like you say, with Franco Nero. They were right yeah. around the same time, but yeah. Yeah, it could have been Anthony Ninja, I, I don't remember. But uh, he's, he was very much an entertainer for a guy who never do, did one of these things. So I'm like, wow, look at that, you yes. know? Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, yeah. You know, the Saturday Night Fever actually worked. I like when I have, like, 200 people on stage with me. All I got to do is ask one or two questions, and you're like, next person, next person, next person. Hey, time's over. <laughs> the Magic Garden girls did sing, because people asked them to at the very end. But you didn't take my <laughs> suggestion about having them do a chuckle patch with dirty jokes in it? <laughs> they're, very, they're, they're very straight-laced. And the, uh, I did dig... And I tried to forage around question-wise with, you guys know this stuff was like really psychedelic, right? And like the pot-smoking crowd was like getting into this stuff. I'm like, well, we kind of blissfully aware and unaware, you know, we're, we were school teachers. I'm like, you look like two lesbian hippie chicks. <laughs> yes. But, but I couldn't say that, you know? Sherlock the Squirrel and all that shit, come on. <laughs> Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, to be to be so honest with you, I can I you know, you're on stage with these people. You you want to treat them as nice as possible. Yeah, you know? yeah. And they and they seem genuine, but they also seem like, you know, no, we weren't two lesbian hippie chicks. They were married with children, so they actually were older than we thought. Yeah, I mean, when we saw them, we we thought they were like in our teens, around early twenties, and that's they were already. Was, yeah. No, they're they're both and they're both hitting around seventy now. Jeez, really? Wow. Well, they look pretty good for it. Yeah, they were very nice. Um, they had some stories, and you know, it's it was really for the hardcore crowd, but you know, it was a packed room. Remember uh, Karen Allen again? Um, <laughs> why do another Animal House thing? It would have been so cool. You know, you could easily kill an hour for Karen Allen just talking about her pictures, mm-hmm. and she's so nice. Uh, but we did another. Animal House, we had two people, three people. And the guy who played Otis was a complete waste because he was, like, brain fried. <clears throat> every, every word he said, he screamed out. Like, hell! Yeah! I was just like, what? Okay. <laughs> um, I don't remember half the other ones. So it was it was an eventful thing, and you know, it was cold again Saturday night. I I think the thing that did me in, you know, so I, I'm doing the 12 to 6. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the buffet was really unappetizing. The bar was packed. They have decent bar food this time, I have to say. But it was packed. And I said, oh, let me ask, run into anybody I know who might be getting a bite somewhere. And maybe I'll tag along. And, like, we already ate. We're, we're going down the road with 14 people in our small car. I was okay. I was, I ended up not eating much. They were doing moonshine, and uh, <laughs> wow. 
I said, try this, it's lemon cake. I said, oh, this is so sweet. No, 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 no. What's this one? Apple pie. I'm like, oh, damn. But you don't feel it, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, what's the proof of that? Uh, I think it's 160. <laughs> 160, and this is like in a shot, a, a plastic shot cup. Mm. I said, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you know, and they killed like two or three of these. They had like these big Ikea glass thingies, you know, and, and I was like, oh man, I'm mm. going. This is not fun. Checking out was a nightmare because I don't know why he keeps going back to this hotel. They must be giving him an incredibly low rate or they must be desperate for the action. And the money they make with this kind of show, but it was telling me they had a lot of issues, and they, I don't even know what they were, but I know when I went to check out, they wanted to charge me for everything. Oh. And I, including everything, let's just say. And I'm like, no, you know, and the, the desk and his table where he sits at like a king all during his show is like right there. And I went over to him and he goes, what are you talking about? Tell them I said that you're on the list. Just go back there. So I go back there. Oh, uh, we need authorization. We're trying to call him now. He's right there. You see him sitting there? He's right there. No, sorry, sir. We can't do it with that. So I go over there. He got pissed. He gets up. He goes to the desk and he said, what's the problem? I told him to tell you. If I told him to tell you, that means you do what he says, meaning me. <laughs> Why is this a problem? He says, you know, he works on staff. He's on the list of staff people. Why are you even charging him? Well, no, no, no. Put it on the master account. I said, okay. So when I got home, mm. you know, because I habitually go through, you know, I pay bills like Friday right before I left. I want to make sure everything ran through right. Mm. When I got home, I saw they charged me and they took it off. I said, okay. Thursday morning, this is like Sunday night, right? So yeah. Thursday morning, I see the charges appear again. What? So I, I messaged him, called them at the hotel, then called them back. And I spoke to a lady. I said, what's going on? Well, yeah, yeah. No, what's going on? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then they finally, by Friday, it disappeared again. They finally straightened it out. I'm like, this hotel really sucks. I would have thought you wouldn't go back there after the gas leak scare last time. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe that's why it was low energy. Maybe I'm just like, you know, how many times can I keep doing it? Oh, and I had a new sound guy. The other sound guy doesn't, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends didn't come anymore. They don't want to come. I don't blame them. Yeah. It's the how many times can I go to Chiller and to St. Vendors and, you know, guests I'm not really into. And the guest like thing, the bomb threat and all that shit last time. A lot of people just don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't fault anybody. You know, it has nothing to do with chill. It's just like... No, it's a hotel. Yeah, it's a hotel. So a lot of people that I usually see, I didn't see. Those I did see, I very rarely saw them. And I was even thinking, you know, do I really want to go back here? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was hard getting it up, so to speak, just mm-hmm. to like... No, because when you do this, and you get on stage, and you talk for like five hours, six hours... Mm-hmm. You know what it's like. You yeah, just, sure. it's, it's, you gotta find somewhere in yourself that something so you can pull it off. Yeah. And then when you're done, you just crash. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, 
Yeah, you got you got to find excitement for stuff that's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then well, like, gotta... yeah, I mean, like, children shouldn't play with dead things. I, uh, oh yeah, that was a, a big panel I did. Uh, I, I actually, I uh, art said, oh, we're doing this one together. He messaged me, and I was like, did I ask you? And I said, you know what? I'm doing so many of these, I could have help. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it was a good idea because he was like so taken with that movie I thought it was a creepy very low budget film and I just don't have the attachment to it that other people have did you ask the fat guy how he peed in his pants <laughs> no but but you know I, I, I'm glad I had help with that well the thing with Jennifer O'Neill too yeah we did do that and she she pulled the Herschel sort of she um it actually came out pretty good if you watch it it came out pretty good but she had a bunch of books she's written on finding God and, oh atone, and atoning for her sins. Oh, boy. And she had an abortion, actually not that long ago, in the late 80s, right? Yeah. With a Wall Street broker. It's on her, it's on her webpage, actually. I'm like, okay. And, well, how old are you anyway to even have a kid at that time? So she just felt so distraught, I think, that she felt she had to write about it and find God. So she has all the shit on the table. And I was like, I told him beforehand, go to her website because a lot of the stuff is on here. And we can't get to our usual sleazy kind because of, I don't think she would get it. You know? Right, right. And I don't think that would be wise. And it turned out that, you know, she came on stage. She asked him to help her up. So I think she's a little frail looking. But first thing she does, she stands up there and starts talking like, 10 minutes and he's looking at me I'm looking at her and I shrug and I said let her do it he said do you think we should stand too and I said no because that looks even weirder you know <laughs> just sit down and let her go at it finally she said oh they're sitting I'll sit too I'm like okay fine thank you <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the way you described it it sounded like when I heard Herschel Gordon Lewis on the, the Third Eye podcast and yeah. I had this whole rack of you know usual like two hours plus worth of questions and he spent 45 minutes straight on my first question, just, you know, giving a monologue. And then, like, you have to backtrack and try to, okay, what didn't he answer and try to squeeze that in really fast? It's crazy. And that's what I thought happened Oh, here. oh no, I did Herschel. I did a, a combo or Herschel. I don't think this is on YouTube anywhere. I don't think it was filmed. It was uh, Mike Brainy, Herschel, Lisa Brainy, uh, a couple of people years ago. And then the last time, that Herschel was at Chiller in one of his last appearances ever. He'd think he died shortly thereafter. They said to me, we want you to do one with him. I said, sure. You know, I've done it before, but, you know, he's out there doing whatever he's doing. And he looked super frail. But that man, you know him. Mm -hmm. So I ask, I'm prepared with lots of good questions and uh, some not so good, you know, but I think it's Herschel Gordon you know. So we start he said, before you begin, he talks for almost 30 minutes. <laughs> yes. And, and I start moving back. I'm moving my chair away from him and more away from him because I figured, well, this is not a Q&A. This is actually a monologue. Monologue. So just go with it. And then, I mean, Orker moments, I still remember to this day. It was like, did you have a question for me? I'm like, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> what didn't you answer? <laughs> Yeah, it's like because when he when he because you know this from your own experience, I'm sure. When he talks, he he tells you his whole life story in an hour. Yep. Yeah, you know? and and you're like, well, 
you already talked about everything I was going to ask about. Yes. But, of course, the questions <laughs> I was going to ask were not what you, you know, exactly said. But then we're just talking about rehashed ground, and I'm afraid to ask him a question because I know the answer might take 15 minutes. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, I did have a... So, I mean, look, Jennifer O'Neill had the potential for being a real crash and burn and actually went worked quite well. So there wasn't a big long thing about her uh, religiosity or whatever? No, at the at the very end we kind of let her just do her thing but it was like two or three minutes and it was not so direct okay. toward anything so it actually was fine. I was fine with that. Okay, good. Yeah, so, yeah I mean, yeah, all time worst is still Paul Morrissey. Paul Morrissey didn't want to discuss any of his films because he liked watching TMC. <laughs> and the next all-time worst was Richard Lynch's last appearance at that show where he just really aged uh, in 20 years within a five-year span and wanted to talk about growing up in Harlem and listening to jazz. Okay, you know, it's, all right, you know. <laughs> And wasn't he drunk too? Yes. <laughs> yes, and slurring. <laughs> and we had a difficult time steering him back to the question. Hey, you know what? I, I did uh, all these have to have been with art. Isn't that ironic? We did the Yafet Koto, which actually was a really good one, but he was a little belligerent. Like he just had a huge chip on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he just looked me and he shouted at me, but, you know, he had good stories, so, you know, it's just like, okay. <laughs> All right, do you want to test this and go into Donald? All right, so let's check this one out. Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio.
Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. 